our overall health is dictated by more than just our diet. But if you look at the Global Burden of Disease study in 2017, poor diet is definitely the number one risk factor. It's, it's the biggest contributor to chronic disease and premature death in, in the world. Hi, everyone. Drew Proet. Today, we have Simon Hill on the podcast talking to us about the power of plants. It's a fascinating conversation. Stay tuned. So if I had to pick one supplement that's made the biggest difference in my overall health, it would have to be magnesium. This super mineral is needed for over 400 different enzyme reactions in your body. And this is the thing, because you know I'm obsessed with sleep. It's so critical for your sleep, plus your heart, brain health, your muscles, and so much more. When you don't get enough magnesium, you can struggle with things like muscle twitches, insomnia, palpitations, constipation, migraines, and the list goes on and on. I personally started taking magnesium to help my sleep, especially when I travel, and it's been a game changer. But I don't just take any old magnesium. I take BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. It contains seven, yes, seven different forms of magnesium, which all have different functions in the body. I haven't found anything else like it on the market. Honest to God. Magnesium Breakthrough can help reduce cortisol and stress and it promotes deeper relaxation and helps with even anxiety. I have so many friends reaching out to me saying that they feel infinitely more relaxed after they incorporated some form of magnesium supplement into their routine. Now, one of the reasons I specifically like bio-optimizers is because their products are soy-free, gluten-free, lactose-free, non-GMO, free of chemicals and fillers, and they're made with all natural ingredients. So right now, if you're looking for a magnesium, bio-optimizers is offering my community 10% off. Just head over to magbreakthrough.com backslash Drew with the code Drew10. That's M-A-G. B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H dot com backslash Drew, D-H-R-U with the code Drew10, D-H-R-U-10, and get your Biooptimizers Magnesium Breakthrough today. Have you ever gone to your doctor for your normal annual physical, and after sitting with them for 10 minutes, they quickly look at your labs and tell you, hey, everything looks normal. Keep it up and I'll see you again next year. Maybe even give you a nice little pat on the back. I can't tell you how many listeners of the podcast have told me that they've had this exact experience and how honestly, how frustrating it can be. Now, we all know that normal isn't always optimal. Just because something's not wrong doesn't mean that we feel great. So traditional medicine is great at finding out when something is blatantly wrong, but they don't always do the best job when we need to highlight how we can do better. So what if you could get detailed nutritional and lifestyle guidance based on your individual needs? That's what Inside Tracker does. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by top scientists from acclaimed universities in the field of aging genetics, and biometrics. Its mission is to help people live long, healthy, productive lives by optimizing their bodies from the inside out. Inside Tracker is cutting-edge technology, and it looks at your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and it has fitness tracker data 
and they give you science-backed recommendations for positive changes to your daily habits. It's all about the daily habits. With their app, you can track your progress every day, and they have an amazing support team to help you with any questions you might have. Inside Tracker looks at everything from metabolic and inflammatory markers to top nutrients and hormones. It even tests your cholesterol levels to help you better manage stress, and you have the option to see how your inner age compares to your chronological age. Traditional lab tests can be hard to read on your own, but Inside Tracker makes their results easy to understand and even provides tips on how to use food first for optimal nutrition. Right now, Inside Tracker is offering my podcast community 25% off their system. Just go to insidetracker.com slash Drew. That's D-H-R-U to get your discount code and try it out for yourself. That's Inside Tracker, I-N-S-I-D-E, Tracker, T-R-A-C-K-E-R.com backslash Drew, D-H-R-U for your 25% off. Welcome to the Drew Perot Podcast. Each week we explore the inner workings of the brain and the body with one of the brightest minds in wellness, medicine, and mindset. This week's guest is Simon Hill. Simon is a physiotherapist and nutritionist who's passionate about making nutritional information simple and accessible so that people can make informed decisions about the food they feed themselves and their family. Simon's the founder of the hugely popular Plant Proof Podcast and blog and the nutritionist in the Chris Hemsworth Fitness App Center. In 2019, he opened a plant-based restaurant, Eden, in his Sydney neighborhood of Bondi. Simon is also the author of the newly released book, The Proof is in the Plants, How Science Shows Us a Plant-Based Diet Could Save Your Life and the Planet. I love having guests on that have a different perspective or viewpoint than I do. And Simon and I don't agree on a lot of stuff, but there's a lot that we also do agree on. And that's why I wanted to make sure that this whole conversation, unedited, was available for you. Really respect Simon and the world that he's uh, out there teaching folks and highlighting the power of plant foods. And I think you're going to enjoy today's conversation. Stay tuned. Simon, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here. True. Thank you. It's a, it's an honor to be here. I'm looking forward to this. Before we jump into your story and a little bit about what got you into this work, I actually want to geek out on a topic that you've written about in your book. You've talked about it on other podcasts and that I'm a huge fan of, and it's this topic of polyphenols mm. and what they do and the extent. You know, at one point in time, people were thinking polyphenols were just lumped in this category of antioxidants mm -hmm. and that they would help with free radical damage and other things like that. And as our research into the world of the gut microbiome went deeper and deeper, we started to truly understand the benefits of some of these phrases. My friend Deanna Minnick, she has this phrase, you know, we got to like strive to eat the rainbow mm -hmm. that's out there. So talk to us about polyphenols. Why are they important? And how can we incorporate them more into our life to get the benefits? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by polyphenols. And, you know, I think over the last 10 years, as you alluded to, the, the, the understanding of the microbiome has evolved greatly and a lot of that is is the development of new technology that has allowed us to better look and understand what the microbiome is and sort of prior to this 
uh, our understanding of polyphenols was that, you know, like other phytochemicals, they're they're found in these plant foods that are, are very colorful, like anthocyanins, for example, in blueberries. And that you would consume them and they'd be absorbed in the small intestine and enter your bloodstream and circulate for what was thought to be around 30 minutes. However, as we've been able to better understand what's happening in the microbiome, we and also be able to understand what metabolites are produced by the microbiome. So that is, as the bacteria are feeding on components of our food, they are producing certain compounds. And really, we had no visibility of those until this last sort of 10-year period. Now we understand that only about 5% of polyphenols are actually absorbed in the small intestine. 95% pass through to the large intestine where the 38 trillion odd microbes reside. And most of these are prebiotic. So we often hear about prebiotics and we think of prebiotic fiber and resistant starch, but polyphenols, many of them also uh, have the capacity to be prebiotic in that they feed the bacteria and then the bacteria is producing you know, up to a thousand different metabolites which then enter the, the bloodstream. And unlike the, the absorption that occurs in the small intestine, those metabolites are, are in the bloodstream for up to 48 hours. So if you eat a cup of blueberries, those anthocyanins, 95% of those pass through to the large intestine and uh, are, are essentially fed on by the microbes. Those metabolites produced will be in your blood for up to two days. And we're just starting to get science that is now studying this at a deeper level and, and looking at, okay, well, if we, if we do a randomized controlled trial and we split people into two groups and one group we expose to uh, a cup of blueberries, for example, um, very rich in anthocyanins, and then the other group we expose them to a placebo. We'll match it for sugar, but it, it won't have the polyphenols, but the energy content will be matched. Uh, you know, what, what, what can we see in terms of health outcomes or certain uh, acute outcomes? So there are a, a range of studies, for example, that are looking at cognitive domains and have done exactly that. So from children to adults to elderly, uh, looked at what are the acute uh, effects in terms of cognition following the consumption of anthocyanins, this class of polyphenols. And uh, you can see that there are significant improvements in cognition in that three to six hour window after consuming blueberries. Uh, and there are a variety of mechanisms that are thought to explain what these metabolites of the polyphenols are doing. Uh, and I think now what we understand, and I, I think in the next five to 10 years, this is going to change a lot, but, but as it stands now, it's almost like these metabolites sort of are, are on the offensive and then they're also on the defensive. So um, on the offensive, they seem to be increasing cerebral perfusion, so blood flow to the brain. And that's thought to be to explain these acute uh, improvements in cognition in that sort of three to six hour window after consuming uh, 
blueberries. But then on the defensive, they seem to be increasing brain-derived neurotrophic factor and, and decreasing inflammation in the brain, which uh, lines up with a lot of epidemiological research showing that people who are more regularly consuming berries have uh, a, a slower rate of cognitive decline. So, um, you know, that's one example of polyphenols in one food group, right? But there are uh, many different types of polyphenols broadly classified as flavonoids and non-flavonoids. Um, and so people will be familiar with catechins in green tea or curcumin in turmeric. Uh, and, you know, our citrus foods are really rich in polyphenols and uh, cocoa in chocolate, for example, is another one or resveratrol in red wine. So uh, I think the main point being here is that we're kind of just on the cusp of understanding what these molecules do for a long time we were kind of we didn't have the the visibility into better understanding their action in the body and uh, although they're not an essential nutrient like a vitamin and mineral that we need for survival and if we don't have we can develop a deficiency and an, an acute illness they are essential for optimal health and and longevity yeah so many times we think of food as we're eating this food for us, mm -hmm. the human, our human cells, our human DNA. And what's been great to see about all this research around polyphenols that's been coming out, and every day more and more, like you said, we're just at the beginning, is it's just another reminder that there's a lot of things that we eat that are not just for us, that our mm. gut bacteria are driving the show in a lot of instances. And I mean, there's so many areas that I want to take that with you from personalization, mm -hmm to you know, food sensitivities, to so mm -hmm. many aspects, and we'll get to all that. But I wanna start off with, um, I wanna piggyback off of that, and I wanna talk about um, another thing that's related to the gut, which is fermented foods. Mm -hmm. I think of fermented foods, especially some of the recent studies that have come out of it, as probably like one of the most underrated mm -hmm. category of foods. I'm Indian by background mm -hmm. from uh, South Asia, and growing up, Every other meal that we had, especially for dinner, because during the day, you know, we were eating a processed vegetarian food diet. Mm -hmm. I grew up vegetarian. Um, I'm eating crappy school lunches in America and things like that. And at night, we'd have a really amazing, you know, home-cooked Indian meal. And every other night, depending on my mom's schedule and what she could make, there was always some sort of fermented dish mm -hmm. that was there. And then we'd go visit family in India to the state of Gujarat, which I was uh, where my family comes from. And fermented foods are so baked into the culture and you were often sort of scolded or told, you know, if you don't eat that, then you can't get some sort of other reward that was there. They didn't know fully why. Mm -hmm. They just knew it intuition. was part of, it was just the intuition yeah. that was baked into the society. Yeah. What do you want to say about fermented foods? Yeah. And I mean, there, there are many cultures around the world. The, the, uh, in South Korea, there's kimchi, for, for example. Uh, and... You know, intuition is is incredible, right? Uh, and I often talk about this. It's it's science is our method to test intuition, and uh, you know, I think you're alluding to a recent study that came out of Stanford University, uh, uh, led by a, a group of researchers, the Sonnenbergs and Professor Christopher Gardner, 
these are kind of like the dream team researchers. If, if you were to get any researchers around the world to ask this question, how do fermented foods affect our microbiome and particularly our immune system, these are the researchers you would want to do that study. And they, they were really interested in, in, in looking at the differences between fiber and fermented foods on the diversity of microbes and also on markers of inflammation really looking at how do foods modulate the immune system. And uh, we know uh, from a range of studies that healthy people tend to have a more diverse microbiome. And people with chronic diseases, metabolic disorder, uh, and, and other illnesses tend to have a less diverse microbiome. So the, the kind of hypothesis was that if you... If you feed people more fiber, you'll increase the diversity of their, their, the microbes. And they weren't 100% sure with fermented foods, but uh, you know we, we kind of do see fermented foods as this probiotic-rich gut health food. So they were interested in seeing what would happen. And they enrolled 38 subjects. So not a huge study, but this is a, a very highly controlled study. Uh, and they, they split those people into two groups. One group took their fiber intake from around 20 grams a day up to 40. And the other group added fermented foods to their diet. And they actually added six serves of fermented foods, which is a lot, right? It's, it's, I don't think I've ever had a single day where I've had six serves of, of fermented foods. Uh, a serve being about uh, a quarter of a cup of kimchi or kraut or uh, one glass of kefir, for example. Uh, and these two different groups that were that were put into the study, they uh, they adopted that the given diet that they were randomised to for a ten week period, and they the uh, researchers were taking stool samples at the start and along the way, and measuring these markers of inflammation as well, and they they really found some very interesting things, and I think this is quite instructive actually. I find it instructive in terms of feedback I get from, from, from clients that I deal with on a one-to-one -one basis. In the fiber group, uh, they actually didn't see an increase in the diversity of the, of the microbes, which was very surprising. That was on the aggregate, on, on, an, on the average. And uh, in the fermented group, they did see across the board an increase in diversity exactly what we we want to see what we believe is associated with improved gut health uh, and from a an inflammation point of view in the fiber group there seemed to be a very personalized uh, response some for some subjects adding more fiber actually increased inflammation whereas for for others it decreased inflammation in the fermented group across the board, the addition of those fermented foods reduced inflammation. Specifically, 19 uh, inflammatory proteins were reduced. So the outcome of this study, and I guess the, the key takeaway points here for now, are that fermented foods seem to be very beneficial for promoting diversity of the microbiome and for reducing inflammation. But 
six serves a day. I, I'm not sure how achievable that is for everyone. And they didn't study two and they didn't study four. And this is a trick in science, actually, if you're looking for funding. Uh, at the start, when you first go for funding, start with something that you are more likely to see a significant effect with, of course, six serves. Right. Uh, Moderate effects don't really yeah. garner a lot of attention. And, and when you do that, you'll get some attention uh, you'll get some media and also you'll have a good reason then to go back and get more funding later on to test four serves and two serves and you know researchers love funding so that's a bit of a, a, a strategy that they have up their sleeve uh, and then on the other side on the fiber group the researchers went back and they thought you know why 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 is this person who increases fiber why are they actually seeing a reduction in inflammation, but this person here is seeing an increase in inflammation? What may explain this? And they were able to go back and look at the baseline diversity of the microbiome, and they saw that those who actually who did well had good diversity at baseline, so a, a sign of a strong gut. Those who did poorly had low diversity. So perhaps they'd been eating an ultra-processed diet for many years. Perhaps they had a history of significant antibiotic use. You know, the list goes on, the things that they could have been doing to contribute to that. But it is instructive because it, it often we do hear, and, and I know I certainly hear, when someone goes to increase their fiber in their diet, it doesn't always work for everyone. And... Uh, that's not to say that fiber is bad for them. It might just be that where they are right now, they need a few extra tools and tips to help them increase the diversity in order to be able to tolerate uh, an increased amount of fiber in their diet. Yeah. And, you know, that really sets up this idea that I'd love to talk to you about, which is, you know, in the book, uh, which is well outlined and well referenced and everything. And that's kind of like your thing, right? Like you are making sure that all the recommendations and suggestions and the controversial topics you dive into saturated fat, uh, you know, dairy, uh, fish and omega threes and everything mm -hmm. like that, that you back it up and you talk about the, um, the weight of different evidence that you link to. I'd love to talk to you about how you see personalization mm in the context of giving people dietary recommendations overall, right? Mm -hmm. So we know broad spectrum strokes that are out there. Yeah. And then where does personalization come into mm -hmm. uh, it when it comes to how much fiber, saturated fat, fish, not to have, this to have? Would love yeah. to hear you I talk about that. I love this question. I think this is a, a great question. Uh, you know, I think that often I'm, 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 asked whether science has really understands what a healthy diet is because you see one headline one day and then the next you see a completely different headline and you can kind of understand how the everyday person out there is left thinking well science actually doesn't know anything <laughs> and then they just end up you know sticking with what they know and I don't think that's right. I don't think that the science is confused. I just don't think it's completely black or white and there is some nuance in there but Overall, there are some very consistent findings that do define what a healthy diet is. And rather than that being some sort of label that, that we kind of come up with, the dietary label, it's more of a theme, a set of characteristics. And 
uh, this is consistent in all of the major guidelines, uh, whether you look at the American Heart Association guidelines, for example, that came out two weeks ago, or guidelines in Europe. These are diets that are low in saturated fat. They're rich in unsaturated fats. They're high in fiber and they're low in ultra processed foods. And that can sound quite vague and you can get, you can achieve that in a number of ways. There are a number of different variations. It could be a well done paleo diet. It could be a well done Mediterranean diet. It could be a vegetarian diet. It could be a well done vegan diet, whole food, plant-based. So I don't actually like to sort of point to one diet being the single best diet for health because I don't believe science has shown that. It shows this theme. And your question around personalization, I think, is really is really interesting because my view is that we are uh, going to be seeing more and more tools coming out that really do help us with personalization. So we can look at blood glucose. We can look at uh, you know, lipids in the postprandial period. We can look at our microbiome. You know, there are a lot of companies out there that are emerging. I'm not sure if the science is completely there yet but they're getting there and they're building data and so it will only become more refined and more specific as we go on i don't think that those those tools and companies are going to change what we understand about a healthy theme or character or overall characteristics of a diet but what they might do is they might give you specific feedback within that theme hey you know you're better suited to these types of legumes or you're better suited to a little bit more fat in your diet. Um, So I see them as uh, a way of being a little bit more granular within that that overall theme that has been clearly established and you know is is a theme that we know is is associated with lower risk of cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity, etc. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, and I know you have connections to this too, and I want you to share your story in a second. I come from the South Asian population in America. Uh, the South Asian community, you know, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, that sort of thing, but specifically the subclassifications of um, individuals from India, which is a high percentage of people that are vegetarian, mm-hmm. have uh, the highest cardiovascular risk of mm-hmm. any, any ethnic minority in the United States. So much so that, you know, Stanford has a whole school that's there to, you know, to look into it. And uh, again, not everybody in that category is, you know, uh, everybody eats differently. And and there's a lot of other markers besides just diet, right? Mm-hmm. It's a generally a sedentary mm-hmm. population set that's there. Um, high stress environment. You have a lot of um, individuals that themselves might be, you know, doctors or professionals or other things that are there. Uh, there could be some genetic components that are mm-hmm. at play and even um, some insulin resistance that, you know, a population that that has a high level of insulin, insulin resistance. So I used to look at that, you know, growing up, I was raised vegetarian and I would see that, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, that, that were there, you know, in India, when you go to like the rural side and other stuff, people are lean, they're working out, mm-hmm. they're, they're on the fields, other things like they look great. And even mm-hmm. my grandmother and 
and my dad remember his grandmother and great grandmother, like they would be squatting at the age of, you know, 80, 90 years old, you know, sweeping on the floor, doing things. There was a lot more movement. And uh, as our mutual friend Dan Butner has talked about in his book, The Blue Zones, there's so many things besides just diet mm. alone mm. that plays into those things. Um, but I did pay attention to that society growing up. And I thought, you know, this is a group that is low saturated fat, mm. right? Comparatively uh, speaking, they do have saturated fat that comes in from uh, ghee that was there, but largely had moved over to vegetable oil because there was so much fear mm -hmm. inside of that population uh, that was there. A good amount of vegetable quantity that that was there. Unfortunately, though, very sedentary lifestyle, probably a lot of high stress. Mm -hmm. Do you think that could be some other things that are at play why that population set was still having these increased risk, the highest risk of mm -hmm. cardiovascular disease. I don't know how too how familiar you are with that population set or not, but just getting you to, you know, tossing your thoughts into the mix. It's a it's a it's a great question. I mean, we definitely need to understand that our overall health is dictated by more than just our diet. But if you look at the Global Burden of Disease study in 2017, poor diet is definitely the number one risk factor. It's it's the biggest contributor to chronic disease and premature death in, in the world. Uh, specifically to that diet, look, uh, you know, I think a lot of uh, Dan Butner's work has clearly shown that the change of environment overall has a significant effect on our uh, on our chronic disease risk and, and longevity, you know, I would need to dig in and see what, when, when someone's reducing saturated fat in their diet, what really dictates their risk of cardiovascular disease and, uh, uh, incidence or mortality is what it's replaced with. And so I would, I would really need to look at that specifically. I know you mentioned their vegetable oils, but it would be interesting to see um, specifically the amount of ultra processed or you know uh, more refined grains that are in that diet. We know clearly from a, a, a large amount of science, both observational and randomized controlled trials, that when you do swap saturated fat for polyunsaturated fats, you do see a reduction in coronary heart disease. Um, so I would be surprised if their saturated fat intake was down well below 10%, uh, which seems to be that kind of threshold. Uh, where you, When you get down below 10% compared to above, that's when you see a reduction in risk. Uh, but I would be very surprised to see that they have super low saturated fat intake, high polyunsaturated fat intake, high fiber intake, and are still at significantly higher risk of heart disease. Now, that said, one thing that's important here is often just comparing population to another population can be deceiving. What we'd need to do is go into that population and look at, okay, within that group of people who are, have the same exposures to all these different aspects of their lifestyle, let's compare those that did get their saturated fat down really low to those that are in that same population with higher saturated fat and is it, can we see a, a difference between them within that population? So there, there's probably a few things in there that I'd need to look at specifically. Um, but across the board, even though you know saturated fat seems to be still debated a little bit, you know I think it's 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 reasonably clear that you know it's not the be all and end all at all. 
but I think the guidelines are good that do suggest lowering it down below that 10% of, of total calories and considering what you're replacing it with. If you replace saturated fat with refined carbohydrates or trans fats, then there's no change in risk or you may be increasing risk of heart disease. And we, and we see that in certain populations around the world. But if you replace it with polyunsaturated fats, monounsaturated fats, or even whole grains, you see a reduction in risk. I definitely think in that population set, there's a lot of refined grains that are there, and it leads to a lot of uh, pre-diabetes population, mm-hmm. even if uh, people are not at pre and pre-pre-diabetes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, most people don't even really know that they're in that pre-diabetic range. That can increase the overall levels of inflammation inside of the body. Um, definitely. I, I think that the most instructive thing for us here, we could look at this at some point and, and, and touch base on it, is that within that population look at those with lower saturated fat compared to those with higher and see if there's a difference in, yeah, in outcome. I'll, I'll connect you with uh, the the Stanford has a South Asian mm. heart department because it's been such a big yeah. issue in that population. And it'd be very curious to see, mm-hmm. you know, for them to go down that pathway. Anyways, enough about my story. Let's talk about your story. Talk to us about your life growing up and your father and how his health crisis was a big part of what took you down your path. Yeah, for I grew up uh, in in Melbourne actually the first few years of my life, and then we moved actually here to the states. I, I uh, lived in Texas. I learned to speak in Texas. I had a Southern American accent. Uh, you probably can't can't imagine that now. Uh, my dad was doing his PhD in Texas in physiology, and uh, he was very interested in microcirculation and looking actually at. Uh, what happens to our blood vessels when we develop type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And uh, we moved back to to Australia when uh, I was about 10 years old. And uh, on weekends, we would uh, spend a lot of time, dad and myself and my brother, would spend a lot of time outside of Melbourne in a, a wine district called the Yarra Valley. And this was just more of a kind of way to bond and drive around to these different small wineries, speak to the winemakers and have some fun together. And on this one particular uh, day, just my dad and I, we had a great day together exploring a few different wineries. We were driving home and my dad started to get some chest pain and I could see that he was uncomfortable and I inquired to to check that he was okay and he reassured me you know everything's okay I, I have a bit of chest pain but I think it will be okay and we proceeded to to go home and cook dinner and I checked in again and he said he was fine and I actually went off to bed and not too long after I was woken to some noise and I thought I better go and check um if he was okay and I came out and he was sort of like clamoring on his way to to make his make a phone call to the paramedics. Triple uh, zero in Australia is the the our number for nine one one, and uh, he actually had called them and he handed the phone to me to help describe the situation. And I spoke to the the paramedic and explained, you know, what was happening. By then he was pale, he was out of breath. And it was really the first time that I'd ever seen my dad scared. 
I could see the fear. You know, it was it was beyond the point where he could now deny it. And uh, they said, look, you're very remote where you're located. Uh, we were about, you know, an hour out of Melbourne and there was no hospital that close then. So they asked me if there was enough room to land a helicopter and there was luckily a, a grass sort of patch out the back and before I knew it a helicopter came they swept him up off the ground put him on a stretcher checking his vital signs connected him to oxygen and off he went I couldn't fit in the helicopter so I was told that I would just trail by road in an ambulance and uh, so I did that and it was a very long drive to the hospital I had called my uh, mother and brother by that stage they were staying in the city and had told them to come and and meet me and that this was what was happening uh all of this was happening extremely fast and i think for context it's important my dad was 41 and he had no prior diagnosis he wasn't on any medications he wasn't relying on the healthcare system he just looked like a sort of you know young father who was reasonably fit and healthy he would go to the gym three four times a week uh perhaps a little overstressed from work and and eating you know what what i would say is the typical australian diet not an overly overly processed diet uh by any means so it was very unexpected and out of the blue and we went to the hospital we waited and waited and the doctor came out and explained to us that my dad had had a severe heart attack, uh, which was you know, a big shock for us, given his age. And uh, however, they had saved his life, which you know, was a huge relief for us. And the, the doctor said, look, tomorrow you'll have a meeting with the cardiologist as a family, uh, a kind of debrief, and we can explain the prognosis. So we went back and had that meeting and, you know, I can remember this, this meeting, you know, vividly uh, going in there and sitting down with this cardiologist and it was a, only a 10 or 15 minute sort of time that we had explained what had happened to my dad's heart um, and had taken my dad's history and my dad's dad, my grandfather had also had a heart attack. His, his was when he was 61. Uh, so had explained that this is in our family and sort of gave my brother and I a bit of advice that where, you know, I was 15 and my brother was 18, you know, you're nearly young men where you practically are. This is something that you will need to keep an eye on and be screened for because cardiovascular disease clearly runs in your family. And that was that. And so we kind of just all went back to living our lives as we were, uh, no real examination of lifestyle. And, I and my brother both really thought that, you know, our sort of genetic card that we've been dealt is, uh, you know, weak genes when it comes to cardiovascular disease. And, and this is going to be something that we will likely have to deal with like our father did at such an early age. Uh, and that's, you know, very disempowering. <laughs> and so it was a number of years sort of living like that without questioning how much control we actually had uh, until you know I, I had done a lot of research and, and did my master's in nutrition and and saw that we actually do have a lot more control 
a lot more to say in terms of our health fate and that even if we do have certain genetic predispositions that predispose us to cardiovascular disease or to type 2 diabetes, that doesn't mean that is our fate. There are things that we can do that change the trajectory, the course of our of our life and ultimately how healthy we are and, and things we can do to stay healthier for longer. And, and, you know, there are a bunch of different studies looking at identical twins, for example, that exact same genes have lived in different environments and have been able to tease out, well, how much, how significant are one's genes, typically speaking, uh, compared to their environment and it seems that genes probably dictate around 20 percent of your health fate and your environment and the decisions you make day to day about how you're navigating through life what you're eating are you exercising how you're sleeping these things uh control about 80 percent of your health fate so you have four more times control than your genes of course there are you know very rare genetic variants where unfortunately no matter how someone lives their their fate is determined by their genes but but what i'm talking about is these chronic diseases of type 2 diabetes of cardiovascular disease fatty liver disease that we've essentially accepted in our societies and normalized it doesn't have to be that way in the case of your dad, because that sends you down a whole rabbit hole, as you mentioned, you got your master's, you went down this path, you know, your, uh, I think it was your brother first who started to change his diet a little bit, and then you started to change your diet, uh, and we'll come back to that in a second, but looking back now with what you know, mm-hmm. to kind of put a button in that story, did your does your family have any of the classic sort of genetic markers that might be, you know, associated with increased heart risk Mm -hmm. and of course from the lifestyle lens diet sleep working out what were some of the things that you think looking back now were the key contributors to what led to your father having a heart attack at 41 years old Mm -hmm. well his cholesterol was high his blood pressure was high so there's two big risk factors straight away and Uh, did he know just asking did he know that those things were elevated? No. He didn't go in for an annual physical? Like he didn't go no, in for, I or mean, he didn't pay attention you, to it? You got to remember what's considered normal, for example, for LDL cholesterol or uh, ApoB, if we wanted to even get more specific, uh, is, is, at an, is at a level where people are developing atherosclerosis. So, for example, in this country, LDL cholesterol, the average sits at about 130, and 100 is considered optimal. But there are a, a, a plethora of studies that have shown that even at 100, around 40 to 50% of people are developing atherosclerosis. And it's not until you get your LDL cholesterol down to 70 milligrams per deciliter, which is about 80 milligrams per deciliter for ApoB. ApoB, I'm not sure if you've spoken about that on this show that much. We've talked about it, yeah. You've talked about it. That's, you know, that's, we talk about LDL cholesterol, but really measuring LDL cholesterol is kind of just... Uh, a surrogate marker for how much ApoB there is um, because around 90% of the ApoB uh, lipoprotein, which is the atherogenic component, it's what causes the particle to get stuck in the intima. About 90% of that is usually found in LDL particles. So you can measure LDL cholesterol and get a good idea for for how much ApoB there is. Um, But 
it's not until you get down to 70 milligrams per deciliter of LDL cholesterol where you see people are not developing atherosclerosis. And interestingly, this is something that Lauren Cordain has written about, who was the author of the Paleo Diet book, and he, he's very aware of and published, he's published a paper in 2005 that is titled The Optimal LDL Cholesterol Level is 50 to 70 milligrams per deciliter. And he goes in there and talks about how the the current uh, accepted LDL cholesterol level, the optimal level, is too high. People are developing plaque buildup in their arteries at that level at, at 100 milligrams per deciliter. And at 130 milligrams per deciliter, which is the kind of average in Australia and in America, that's double the level where you do not see atherosclerosis. So my dad was was you know operating with a, a higher than normal LDL cholesterol. I think that you know if he had his time again, he probably would have would have made some lifestyle changes to bring that down. His blood pressure was also a little high. Um, and that does seem to run in our family. My grandfather has high blood pressure or had high blood pressure. So, uh, you know, I think that that like a lot of people, and particularly males, even if you're getting your annual physical, you're not paying a lot of attention to it, or you're not even doing annual bloods. And so there can be these different risk factors bubbling away under the surface that are predisposing you to a disease. And then if you throw on top of that some genetic predisposition, then, you know, these things can happen. You know, some of the, you were referencing some of these studies, and I think one part of evidence-based medicine is also clinical mm -hmm. experience, right? Like the clinical experience from doctors and things like that. I'm not a medical doctor myself. I know we've had some people on the podcast that come in and say, okay, you know, cholesterol, LDL, great. And one other additional layer that we have to look at is we want to look at lipid particle size, mm -hmm. right? NMR testing. And we're also looking at overall CRP to see how is the inflammation going and maybe a little less worried for patients who cholesterol bumps up if they feel like they can handle a little bit more fat, as long as their inflammation is staying low and their particle size of the cholesterols mm -hmm. that are there are on the higher end versus the lower end. Anything that you've come across while you were writing this book together uh, about those components? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd point everyone to it a paper written by the cardiologist Brian Ferentz. It's part of the European uh, Cardiovascular Society guidelines in 2017 because he goes into this uh, in detail. And I think this is really important for people to understand is that, you know, often when, when uh, you speak about high cholesterol being a risk factor, I do hear, well, my HDL is high or, you know, but I don't have oxidized LDL, for example. Or, uh, you know, what about particle size, large, fluffy uh, versus small, dense, for example. And we have enough science to show that even when you adjust for those, and what I mean by adjusting is that let's say we're looking at someone with higher LDL to someone with lower when we adjust for particle size, which means we're, we're removing that as a variable, we're, we're not going to compare people high LDL versus low LDL who have different particle size. We're going to remove that. So we're only going to look at people with the exact same particle size. We, see, we still see that LDL cholesterol being higher increases risk of coronary heart disease. 
And, and so, that's what this gentleman wrote about. So he's done his yeah, own studies. So this, this is this is completely summarized in that guideline paper. And that is why, you know, despite some of this stuff that you'll hear online and on Twitter about oxidized or about large fluffy, and don't get me wrong, large fluffy can modulate the risk but it's it's not like if you have high ldl and it's large fluffy that you're not at increased risk compared to having low ldl you would be at much lower risk at low ldl regardless of the particle size that is so clear in the literature um and and so you know that's a that's a good paper for people to to go and look at uh and i think to add on to this you know, because sometimes people will will say, "Well, you know, I've adopted this diet and I've lost weight, and my uh, apoB has shot right up." And when you say this diet, you mean like a higher fat diet? Yeah, it could be a yeah. high. Well, yeah, like a, a higher a fat diet that's sa- fat. saturated I mean, can, fat. Yeah, you can do. We could talk about. I think you can do a keto or a low carb style diet in a way where you're not jacking up your apoB. For sure. And, and so I think there's a way to do it in a really healthy manner. Um, well, I think one thing that's uh, that's there is that, I mean, some people, like my brother-in-law, he's a cardiologist, he's a functional medicine doctor based in San Diego. And, um, you know, there's, because because heart health is such a big thing in our mm. South Asian population, he's also Indian too. There's very much this understanding that like, like high LDL is something that we want to stay away from, mm-hmm. right? There does seem to be, him and I both did go on an experiment a few years ago where we went, let's say higher saturated fat. Mm-hmm. His lipids headed in the right direction. My lipids headed in the wrong direction. My LDL went way up and I also noticed actual changes in my body. I felt more inflammation, other things like that. And when I was talking to a few of uh, the folks that have been on this uh, this podcast, um, you know, they were like, look, you have to understand that saturated fat for some people that especially have like higher amounts of saturated fat that are coming from grass-fed beef or mm-hmm. MCT oil or other things like that, for people especially that have had a history of antibiotic usage or other things, besides your own unique, call it genotype, phenotype, whatever you want to add in the mix, there's people that are not going to do well on that. And I significantly dialed back the saturated mm-hmm. fat of my diet and I've actually felt better. Forget about my lipids. They improved too. My LDL came down, everything like that. But I actually noticed less inflammation in my skin, less redness in my skin. And my brother-in-law is over there trucking along and his LDL mm-hmm. and his uh, particle size and everything is staying in the in the in the right direction. Now, I would have to dig a little bit deeper to get to you what is his total percentage of overall calories that come from yeah. saturated fat. Besides just doing mathematical yeah. math math on it, is there any other way to yeah. that you recommend? Well, I mean saturated fat, let's let's also remember it's an umbrella term. There are lots of different types. You know, so uh, we could be talking about palmitic or, uh, for example, which will increase cholesterol, whereas steric acid, which is a saturated fat predominantly found in foods like uh, chocolate, for example, doesn't increase cholesterol. Uh, And MCTs do not appear to increase cholesterol. Coconut oil does, but that has has a lot more lauric acid, which some people say is not really an MCT, but pure MCTs do not seem to increase cholesterol. So there is some uh, nuance here. If two people do a diet high in saturated fat, what foods are they eating? Is it the, is it the same type of saturated fats that they're being exposed to? We know, you know, typically in most people, the saturated fats in red meat, for example, will have more of an effect on cholesterol than those in dairy. Uh, but, you know, 
there are a number of instructive studies that have looked at exactly this, uh, like Bergeron in, in 2019. This study looked uh, very clearly at uh, three different groups, red meat, lean red meat, actually, uh, lean white meat, and vegetable uh, protein, plant protein, legumes, for example. And they were able to show very clearly in this study that even though they were lean lean types of meat, red and white, those people that were consuming the plant proteins saw much greater, significant reductions in LDL cholesterol and ApoB. Now, back to our personalized uh, point that we made earlier, there may be some genetic differences where certain people can eat a little more saturated fat and it doesn't have the same effect on their LDL cholesterol or ApoB. These studies are aggregates, averages. So, you know, we have these rules of, of thumb, eating more unsaturated fats and plant protein and more fiber for reducing cholesterol. But certainly people need to be doing their labs and looking at, well, what's actually happening to them? Yeah, it's one of those things that I'm just so glad that as, you know, I think your book is trying to cut through the confusion, but as confusion, as much as, con listen, I'm confused at times, right? Like I, there's even times where I'm trying different personal experiments. And again, I don't have a master's like you. This is not my full-time thing. I'm just trying to interview the people and ask good questions that are out there. But I am a, a partner at a medical clinic mm -hmm. and I see how those functional medicine doctors approach it. And I've seen it go both ways. There's people that do really well on a, you know, there's these classic underlining things, getting away from ultra processed foods, mm -hmm. having a ton of good quality plant fibers inside of the diet, uh, having a wide array of the colors of the rainbow, minus some exceptions that might be there for unique challenges that people are dealing with, with gut sensitivities in particular. And then once that's healed, then being able to mm -hmm. eat a lot more variety, uh, a lot more variety. And, um, I've been vegan before I've been a raw foodist before I've done vegetarian and I just try to run these personal experiments where I'm just looking through, but at least I know those base things mm -hmm. to be true. And then the other layer that I add on that is that keeping my, uh, because insulin, um, because being insulin resistant is something that I think that my population set deals with more so than other people mm. keeping a watch on things that jack up my average mm. blood sugar mm -hmm. to uh, a level where i don't feel is is optimal but i mm. still outside of that i definitely still get confused sometimes mm. right i know you don't no i mean i i certainly still do and and i i think anyone who says they don't get confused at all is lying or they're not looking deeply enough at these topics because yeah for sure i, I mean i i'm i'm constantly trying to stay on top of the literature and and make sense of things and not everything is completely black or white uh you know insulin resistance is a big interesting topic in, in and of itself but it kind of ties into what we're talking about yeah here. yeah do you want to chat about here. it uh you know there i think a, a lot of the time the we shoot the messenger with insulin resistance because someone who's insulin resistance, they have a banana or some type of carbohydrates, have uh, poor, poor blood glucose reading, fasting uh, glucose or postprandially, and we tend to blame carbohydrates for that. But the literature is is pretty clear and, and some of this ties into fatty liver disease and insulin resistance in the liver. Uh, and there was a huge review just published um, 
in 2020 that looked exactly at, at this and looked at human clinical intervention studies and looking at insulin resistance in the liver. Uh, and this is important because as you become more insulin resistance insulin resistant in the liver you you can't turn off the the glucose that's being produced in the liver and going into the blood and you end up with higher fasting blood glucose uh it looked this review really showed that um and it, it was essentially looking at different nutrients saturated fat and carbohydrates refined carbohydrates uh, fructose high fructose corn syrup for example and was looking at uh, how do these differentially affect insulin resistance and they were able to clearly show and again these are all human clinical intervention trials that when you feed people in in a calorie surplus both refined carbohydrates and saturated fats will increase insulin resistance but if you are feeding people at maintenance calories so the the amount of calories that their body requires on a daily basis not putting them into a surplus the refined carbohydrates did not increase insulin resistance in the liver but saturated fat did so i think sometimes when i see this discussion around insulin resistance my view is that the uh, this this fatty buildup, so hepatic fat in the liver, or if we're talking about fat in muscle cells, uh, ectopic fat is what it's, it's called as, is primarily coming from an, an excessive consumption of calories, uh, but can also be driven by saturated fat. And even though we see the the metabolic marker where we're looking at is fasting glucose or postprandial blood glucose we are shooting the messenger. Those carbohydrates can't get into the cell because of ectopic fat. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've spoken with Dr. Nicola Guess about this, who's doing a, a lot of research in this space. And um, I think her work is consistent with what I've just explained, um, that primary driver being excessive calories. But if we were to, to start looking at individual nutrients, we would probably be zooming in more on saturated fat than anything else. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, this is the confusing part is that when people come into our clinic or let's say any doctors working with the patient of, you know, like one of the earliest indication in men that maybe that there's some insulin resistance going on is like, uh, is, is erectile dysfunction, mm-hmm. right? And one in women is often PCOS. Mm-hmm. And so it's great to see the approach of how do people traditionally, like a, like a integrative functional medicine doctor, regardless of, you know, what their views on dietary, you know, stuff are, some are vegetarian, some are this, some of that. It's always interesting to see what the approach is to address. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you address that? Like, how do you address that, you know, erectile dysfunction? How do you address that PCOS that mm-hmm. somebody's dealing with? And it's often uh, getting them off of ultra processed foods, mm-hmm. which helps on both sides, getting them off of refined carbs and saturated Yeah, we fats, should. That's a great point because right? that's often overlooked, right? We've often ultra-processed foods are sort of used synonymously as refined carbohydrates. Oh, there's, there's saturated a lot fat of saturated too. Fats totally, totally. So there's, the, there's, the, there's that component. There's generally of uh, an approach of getting the better quality fats in the diet, which naturally, even if the attention isn't to reduce, and again, there's different types of saturated fats, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, getting better quality fats in the diet, olive oils, uh, fish, which we'll come back mm-hmm. to in a, in a little bit. I know you have some comments on that. Um, and then there's also uh, just reducing the total sugar intake mm-hmm. overall, which 
let's say if they're using a continuous glucose monitor or anything like that, they're going to, it's going, they're going to be indifferent, mm -hmm. whether it's your Starbucks Frappuccino or whether it's you having, you know, uh, you know, tortillas in the day that are bumping you up and you're just cataloging it all. And that approach within a very short period of time, you know, 30 to 90 days typically is the approach where, you know, people start to see a reversal in, in symptoms Definitely. that are related and, to that. And, and, you know, all of that is consistent with, with, the, with the literature. Uh, I don't think that's really in conflict with, with any of where I'm coming. No, no, it's not at all. I think the thing that was added as a layer is that I, I wonder, you know, and I'd be love to hear from you is like, what would be the best beautifully designed study that would parse out the difference between mm -hmm. those two? Right. Mm -hmm. Cause like, yeah. like I would love to hear you that because I see it as a, like a little bit of both. I see mm -hmm. how, I, what seems to consistently work is that people are reducing their overall sugar intake, mm -hmm. which includes some of the refined carbs and they're reprioritizing the fats and getting people yeah. off of trans fats and ultra processed foods. So it sounds like it's a little bit of, of both. Is it fair to say that it's, more saturated fat or it's it's more carbs it kind of seems like it's it's both of those things well it's tough in that scenario because i imagine a lot of those people re reducing ultra processed foods there's a lot of weight loss and really a lot of the improvements that you're going to see in insulin resistance are driven through the reduction in weight so to tease out what you're talking about you would want to remove eliminate weight loss from this as a variable and look specifically at modulating nutrients so looking at one group who is you know significantly reducing their refined carbohydrate intake the other group significantly reducing their saturated fat intake but keeping total calories equivalent uh would be the way to kind of tease that out but i believe that you know there is some research that has has looked at that uh and you know even to date if you look at type 2 diabetes for example uh i believe to date the only trial that has shown uh improvement in insulin resistance without weight loss is a high carbohydrate diet and that was uh done back actually in the 1970s and hasn't been reproduced which is uh something that should raise a few alarms alarm bells um but if you look at the big big trials like the verta health studies for example with low carb diets um you know weight loss is probably the primary factor that is seeing the the improvement in um you know various biomarkers and reduction in medications have you ex ever experimented with like a continuous glucose monitor yourself or do you recommend them or do you feel like that is taking us in the wrong direction of what people are paying attention to no i'm i'm open-minded about those i i i know that that seems to be a charged topic sometimes online um i see different people with different opinions about them uh actually was sent uh a kit from a company called zoe um they haven't paid me anything uh but i have received this so i thought i should mention it uh i haven't used it yet i have this kit they sent it to me while i'm here in the states because you can't do it in, in right, australia right. um so that has a cgm in there and has like a microbiome stool test and and whatnot so i'm looking forward to seeing what information it it provides uh is it adding more confusion? I don't think so. As long as the information to the person using it understands how to use it and how to use the data that it produces. So, uh, you know, I, I don't believe there's any evidence to suggest, for example, 
uh, an increase in blood glucose or insulin in the postprandial position uh, period that is within the physiological norm range is problematic. Uh, sometimes I'll see online people suggesting that the goal should be to completely flatline it. Uh, so I think we just need to understand what is the data producing. And then when we look at all of the overall science and literature that we have on that biomarker, what, what does that mean to us? Now, is that hard for the everyday person? Perhaps, if, but I think these companies can support them and, and, and help them make use of that data. Yeah, I'd love you. I'd love you to meet uh, Dr. Casey Means. She's been on the podcast before. She's also uh, outside a little bit of fish inclusion mm -hmm. in her diet. You know, is very vocal about being um, plant focused mm -hmm. with her approach. Yeah, I've heard her before. I think I heard her on this show. I think the stuff she's doing is great. Yeah, and the the thing that I feel like um, that that we've we've gotten a chance to dive into, and again, you guys would have a much better understanding of the research than I would, is that. It seems to be a, a, a lot of strong evidence that high variations in glucose are directly upstream tied to um, the downstream effects of ultimately leading to um, lowering that insulin sensitivity that we all want inside of the body and building more insulin resistance that's there because your body's constantly having to recalibrate comparatively mm -hmm. to eating again, however you want to do it. You know, she's more plant focused, mm -hmm. which I, you know, I appreciate that approach. And she's talked about how she does it, including beans and, and mm -hmm. good quality carbohydrates and other, everything like that. But it seems to be that the goal is not to flatline, but not to have these crazy mm -hmm. roller coasters, which are very typical of mm -hmm. also the sort of processed American Australian di diet that's out there. Yeah. I, w I mean, I would, agree with that uh and that can that can affect your appetite and how you feel in the postprandial uh period as well um i guess what where i was going with the the flatlining is more in, in the in the ketogenic community i think i think it can be a little deceiving as well if you go on a very extremely high fat diet without any carbohydrates are you actually improving insulin sensitivity uh, or are you just removing carbohydrates and so you don't have to worry about that as a problem? But I think if you challenged most of those people, they would be insulin resistant. Uh, depending on, on where they are from a weight point of view, sure, if the ketogenic diet allowed them to lose a lot of weight, then they would their insulin sensitivity would improve. But if they're just at a sort of maintenance level, um, you know, I would suspect that many of them are insulin resistant and I actually know quite a few uh, people with type 1 diabetes who are really the perfect model for this because they know how much insulin they're actually injecting, um, who after a fairly uh, long period, three, four, five months on a ketogenic diet, do notice they have to inject significantly more insulin. So um, I guess my main point around these CGMs is I think there is potentially a place for them, but we really need to be guided by very good quality science and the the education piece needs to be there or my fear is they'll be misused uh online you know where you can you can show for example have 
a, a bacon and four eggs compared to you know oatmeal with some uh, berries on it and and on a sort of comparison chart you could show that the bacon and eggs is more of a flat line and on the right is uh, an increase in glucose and I'd see this online all the time sure. and you can kind of make it out well look you know on the oatmeal you see the the glucose go up and that's that's a problem but really that's not a problem we need to uh we need we need to help people make sense of these tools to then really either for themselves or if they're a health professional make good recommendations and choices same thing with alcohol right i mean like not every alcohol but like if you mm -hmm. drink you know wine you're not going to see a big bump mm -hmm. and of course everybody knows that alcohol is mm -hmm. not ideal and is a neurotoxin mm -hmm. and so just because something doesn't spike your blood sugar doesn't mean that it's uh, something that we want to be eating all the mm -hmm. time on a regular basis. But I do think that it's part of a trend and where I was going before of some of the good side of this confusion and this attention that's there is number one, people are suffering more than ever before in mm -hmm. the history of humanity. And there's more awareness that they're suffering when it comes to this aspect of health, right? We're not living in our natural environments where a lot of these things were sort of baked in and, um, before like the industrial uh, age that was there. So that's led to a deep curiosity. A lot of people mm -hmm. have questions. I think that's a great thing. It's amazing. And it's, 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 it's science that will push it forward and help us tease all of that out. I, I don't think it should distract us from, uh, you know, I, d I don't think we're at a position right now in terms of big picture, this, the, the chronic disease pandemic. Uh, it's, it's not like we, we don't know what to do. We just can't do what we know. And it's our environment that in many ways needs to change. And so while all of this new technology and stuff I think is super cool and for personalization, it's, it's fantastic. None of this will really matter if the overall environment like Dan Butner talks about does not shift. And we have to, to shift it in a way where the convenient, delicious, healthy, affordable choice uh, is the healthy choice. And these are the foods that you know people are eating more regularly and we're shifting people to that theme that I described earlier. Um, when we're doing that on scale, which really you know requires a, a lot of thought and a lot of regulation and just changes to the way we've set up our society that's when we'll squeeze chronic disease out of society i don't think that the the fancy tools are going to be enough because you can give people as many tools as 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 you want but if their environment is set up in a way where it's designed for them to fail it's going to be very hard for them to succeed i a little bit disagree with you and i'd love to chime in i think that for the i mean we're talking about like the whole population mm -hmm. of the world I think food, and I'm not talking about the current tools that we have access to. I actually think that the only solution out of this is technology. And I'll tell you why. I think food is so addictive. I think it's harder to change your diet than it is to change your religion. And I think that sugar is so addictive. And I think that uh, sugar and fat in combination mm -hmm. is so addictive. And I think that we live a life of luxury where you and I get to like study this stuff and the people mm -hmm. that are listening get to hear and make these changes. And I think that willpower, which of course can get you started, but is not the ultimate thing to keep you going, is so tough that if people don't have some recognition 
of are they heading in the right direction, supported by the science, mm-hmm. right? Just like you're talking about earlier, it's I think it's gonna be too difficult. I don't th- for I most agree people it's not about to willpower. Change. I would agree it's not about willpower. And I think also uh, I'll add in one more thought before you chime in. Yeah. I think also this idea of n- making the connection between what you eat and how you feel on a daily basis, just even like going back to like your dad's story, right? It's um it's not enough feedback for most people to know. Like your 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 dad, from what I've heard from other interviews, he was kind of not feeling like the best for a little while bef- like mm. before. It's not like he felt perfect health. Would you say so? Or you correct me if I'm no, wrong. No, no, he was good. He was, yeah. Uh, he, he may have been a little stressed and overworked, but yeah, he was healthy. He was healthy going into that. Okay. So I guess my definition of what I mean by that health aspect is that it's it's very rarely that you, in the truest sense of mental cognition, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not you go from zero to heart attack. Mm-hmm. Most people are going to experience stuff, a lot of things along the way. They're going to notice a little bit of decrease in, in uh, you know, it could be immunity, could be for men, it could be erectile dysfunction, mm-hmm. could be a lot of different things that are kind of like markers along the, the way mm-hmm. that, are, that are there. But most people don't know that mm-hmm. and they're not going to know even what to look for. So I think that if we just tell people what to do and it's primarily based on education alone without the intervention of technology, I just feel a little skeptical that that in itself that that people making decisions on their own without the help help of tools mm. is it's it's almost a luxury. I'd love to hear your thoughts yeah. against that and feel think, free to disagree uh, with everything that I no, say. No, I agree with what you say. I think maybe uh I didn't really uh explain where what I what I meant uh clearly enough. So I don't believe this is about education uh, on an individual level or collective willpower at all you know and that can seem funny for someone who writes a book uh i've I've, i say in the book that you know let's look at smoking for for example we knew from the 1940s that smoking was increasing risk of lung cancer it took until really the 70s and 80s for legislation to come in there was taxes it was changing in advertising uh and and by that stage doctors were now recommending people not to smoke it took three four decades from the science to those changes to actually come into place and so there was a long period of time where if people were able to get good information they could make change and they they didn't end up with lung cancer and they lived for longer so education and the book for me is about giving people information now who are privileged enough to be listening to this podcast or buy the book to say hey the food environment is not going to shift overnight so you're you are going to to need to navigate in this tricky environment and make better decisions if your health is important to you where i was going with what needs to happen to really squeeze chronic disease out of the society is not that. It is actually legislation changing, physically changing our cities and our food environments, stopping marketing of junk food to children. That's We're getting them addicted from the beginning. Stopping these ultra-processed food companies from sponsoring all of the sports stars and the advertisements at halftime that, you know, all these young children are, are watching and, and, you know, they're, they're seeing their idols associated with these junk food brands. It's about changing the way that the foods show up on the shelves at the grocery stores. 
both by increasing the availability of healthy foods, but by making those less healthy foods uh, less accessible through pricing and through various strategies in terms of where they're sitting on the shelf. For example, the UK just brought out uh, a piece of legislation that stops ultra-processed foods, Mars bars and all these different foods that sit at checkout because they know that's where people make impulse purchases, it's where kids are grabbing stuff and throwing it into the trolley, and they're replacing those ultra-processed foods with healthy foods. Uh, so, you know, I'm talking about a recreation of the food environment. We need to have better regulation. These transnational ultra-processed food companies, you've got to remember, 60% of the average person's calories in this, comp- in this country are coming from ultra-processed foods. We're, we've, we have to really reduce that. <laughs> and so um, what I'm talking about is recreating that environment. And I, I, I don't believe that, you know, the fancy tools and, and, and technology, as good as they will be, I don't believe will succeed if we do not change that food environment. So, you know, I think that all of this is 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 necessary, but I, I, I do feel like um, you know our we need our governments to develop the political will uh, to start making uh, introducing regulations, uh, new policy that speaks to improving the the food environment. If you were a betting man, what's your bet on that happening? Whether it's Australia, America, you know. There might be some European countries, Denmark, I could see, you know, mm-hmm. could get behind that, some other countries there. But let's say Australia and America individually. Mm-hmm. If you were a betting man, what are your thoughts of a major policy policy shift happening in that direction where it's like a, a dedicated component, right? Knowing that also a lot of things happen incrementally. It's not mm-hmm. like there's a sweeping legislation that ends mm-hmm. up happening. But to that degree, in the next, let's say, 50 years in our in our in our lifetime. I think it will it will happen, but it will happen slowly. Look at smoking. I see that as a perfect example. You know, it took a long time for for changes to to come into place and to see big reductions in the in the uh, incidence of of smoking in our communities. So, uh, you know, I, I, in many ways, I, I look at our politicians and I don't see them as leaders; they're followers. <laughs> they follow the the community and the 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 way the society changes its views on certain things. And it, it, it will incrementally get to a point where it's just not acceptable to be marketing these foods to children that we know are have addictive properties and are setting them, set them up for obesity and type 2 diabetes. It's just going to get to a point where they're going to have to step in and, and regulate. Uh, and, you know, like things like sugar taxes, these, these are not policies that governments traditionally have wanted to touch. It's a great way to lose votes because people don't really want to be told what to eat. You know, it's a it's a very unfavorable area of policy for a, a, a politician to step into. So we've really, for a long period, seen them just steering clear of it, and as a result, the these transnational food companies have had a very free run in an underregulated market. Uh, but it is changing. There are now sugar taxes in twenty plus countries around the world uh so there are countries that are are putting their foot down saying this is enough we need a healthier population that's happier they're going to be more productive there'll be less healthcare costs um 
you know, there there is introduction of policy in certain countries that are stopping what's called the revolving door. This is happening right now. So you have uh, politicians uh, in in high up positions who are creating policy, uh, who will leave their position and then go and work in a senior position in the food industry. And they have these very tight relationships that exist between government and food industry. And of course, that, that, that results in you know, certain policies that would be unfavorable getting blocked and favorable policies getting um, approved. And what's happening in certain countries is they're putting what's called a cooling off period in place, which I think just has to happen from a conflict of interest point of view. If you're in government in a higher position and you leave that position, Instead of being promised a job in the, the food industry, you actually have to, for three, four, five years, you, you can't jump and, and work in the food industry and vice versa. So, uh, you know, call me an optimist, but I, I we, we have a big problem, right? But there are things happening around the world and, you know, the chronic disease numbers are just mind boggling. We can't just keep ignoring them. And, you know, throw on top of that planetary health and, uh, you know, these, I, I, I think there will be enough pressure on politicians to, to start implementing these things, particularly, you know, the younger generations that are coming through more and more increasingly, they care about these issues. So, um, you know, it'll hit a point where it becomes the favorable, favorable thing to actually start changing the food environment so that it is a more equitable one, it's, it's a healthier one, and people are eating healthier food that's actually nourishing them more often. What, what do you think are a couple of foods or food topics that you've covered inside of the book that you personally feel have the most confusion around them right now. I mean, we touched on saturated mm -hmm. fat. That's a big one in that mm -hmm. category. Are there any other couple ones that you feel are like, there's a lot of, <laughs> you throw me, throw me under the bus here. <laughs> uh, I didn't make a big deal of, of seed oils in the book, but I think there is some confusion about seed yeah, oils. Let's go into it. I uh, read a little bit about your thoughts on seed oils yeah. and their connection to inflammation. Mm. I know that uh, we've talked a lot about seed oils. We've had people talk a lot about seed oils, but would love to hear your perspective mm -hmm. and um, and uh, and what you've gathered together from the science yeah. that's out there. So firstly, uh, I'm not a, a, a sort of uh, seed oil advocate. I, I don't think they need to be part of a healthy diet. Uh, I was just really interested in there seems to be uh, some significant demonization of seed oils out there and the general sort of rhetoric is that they're very inflammatory and that they promote obesity and I thought that was really interesting and wanted to look at the studies and again go back evidence hierarchy look at what's the quality of the science that that people are using when when they're uh, suggesting that these oils are inflammatory and what do we see when we look at human intervention studies and uh you know, most of the, the claims around these seed oils being inflammatory are from mechanistic studies. So petri dish uh, level science, which is an important area of science. That's what my dad still does today. He's done for 40 years. Uh, 
but that's really hypothesis generating science. Uh, you, you, you can rarely use that to make public health recommendations because many, many things that we see under a microscope do not play out in a human. Um, and so... And can I add in one note there? Yeah. And, and part of that is also too, talking about a subject enough to support the people that are doing research around it to actually go and do research. Like mm -hmm. prior to like a lot of the work on fasting that's come out by Walter Longo, mm -hmm. Uh, such in Panda, like all these people that are there, the 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 research on fasting 15 years ago was more limited, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes there's not the research that's there, and sometimes in some cases there is the research mm -hmm. that's that's there. So just want to make the distinction between the two is that if they've done the research to look at the uh, you know seed oils versus not, and then and then and then the variations of what that that research would look like. So I was just making the note that sometimes things have not been done at a high enough level sure. because nobody's funded that study. And, and in that case, if all you have to work with, and I mean, this is how the evidence hierarchy works. If you have if you're a certain topic and there's no data on humans and there's some interesting findings at a mechanistic level, so it's hypothesis generating, but it might be enough to make a public health recommendation at that point and say, you know, proceed with caution. This is what we've seen at this level of science. We we don't have higher level of, of evidence to date. Um, but in this instance, we do. There are lots of human clinical intervention trials showing, you know, and I guess I should rewind. The idea that, that seed oils are inflammatory uh, really comes from the fact that if you look at the omega-6 pathway and you look at uh, linoleic acid, which is omega-6, um, it's a short-chain uh, omega-6. If you look um, at that pathway, and this is linoleic acid is, is rich in seed oils, if you look at that pathway, linoleic acid um, gets desaturated and elongated and, and, and uh, gets reduced into a, a long-chain uh, omega-6, and I know you've spoken about this on your show, but one of the intermediary omega-6s is, is arachidonic acid. And this is a precursor to a number of inflammatory derivatives molecules. Uh, so the idea is that these seed oils are inflammatory because they're rich in linoleic acid that will increase arachidonic acid. It's a mouthful, that one. Uh, we'll call it AA from here on. And uh, and you'll get an, an, an increase in interleukins and various inflammatory uh, markers, molecules. And... You know, it it makes sense on paper when you look at it, but when you look at the human clinical intervention trials, if you feed people linoleic acid, you do not increase AA in their tissues, and if you feed them linoleic acid, you don't increase inflammatory markers. And this has been reproduced time and time again. And so I found that really interesting. And there's a paper people can refer to by Philip Calder. He's probably one of the main researchers looking at uh, omega-6 uh, linoleic acid and inflammation. And he wrote this paper last year reviewing all of the literature. And he describes exactly that, that despite the claims of increasing inflammation, the studies show that's not the case. And in that study, do you know what was the primary marker? Because this has come up with a lot of studies mm -hmm. on inflammation. 
what is the primary ways that they're measuring? Is it CRP? Like, what is yeah, the primary so methods of looking question. at inflammation? Uh, so this is that's a review, and they're looking at all of the various human clinical intervention studies. So each of them looks at different markers. They tend to all look at um, CRP, but there are other uh, interleukins and other markers. I think it's twenty or thirty different markers across the board that have been looked at. Um, so you know, is something being missed? Maybe, but. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't seem, based on the the most common markers, that when you feed linoleic acid, it doesn't seem to increase inflammation, which then does line up with large scale observational research, which shows people that are consuming more linoleic acid have lower risk of all cause mortality, and this is even in large population studies that have looked at tissue levels as a marker of linoleic acid. So much more specific than say a food frequency questionnaire. Uh, so, I mean, you have to wonder when when there's converging lines of evidence all pointing in that direction, uh, you know, is the, is the mechanistic data that suggests these oils are inflammatory, uh, you know, is this another case of something we see at a mechanistic level that doesn't play out in humans? And, you know, reverting back to what my initial point was that I'm not some sort of seed oil advocate, my problem with the anti-seed oil rhetoric is not that I think seed oils need to be in someone's diet. I don't. But usually what happens is it's uh, anti-seed oil rhetoric followed by you should eat saturated fat instead. And really, if you zoom out and look at all of the literature, there's no need to be consuming seed oils in your diet. You could. I don't think we need to completely fear them. I don't personally think that's unwarranted, and I think uh, warranted. Uh, and I do refer people to that article by Philip Calder. Uh, but saturated fat, I do think we need to be mindful of. Yeah, I would love to uh, dig into those a little bit more. I, met, I saw the references to them in the book and uh, do a part two where I can ask more sure. appropriate questions that yeah. come in from them and uh and and to dive into it you know i think the other the the component that you've talked about with a lot of aspects with salt and the same thing goes with seed oils uh well we'll put salt aside for a second because that's a little bit different um you know i think i i look back and i just think most seed oils that people are going to be consuming is probably corn and soy mm -hmm. right and then there may be a handful of other ones and then rare amounts of cold pressed you know, mm -hmm. seed oils that are actual seed oils. They're coming from a very deep chemical process, mm -hmm. 18 to 32 steps, depending on the seed oil that's there. And the vast majority of them are going to be coming from processed foods mm -hmm. that are, that is how people are going to get them. Whether they're, regardless of what type of diet that they're eating, they're going to be getting them from processed foods, mm -hmm. ultra processed foods that the seed oils are built into. I look at it from the standpoint of these foods were, not really a big part of our diet to partly hardly existed mm -hmm. that were there. And then it does seem that keeping an optimal ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 is connected to not demonizing any particular thing because we, you know, I do agree with you that the tendency is to demonize one thing mm -hmm. and then to prop up your argument mm -hmm. of in this case, mm -hmm. let's say somebody's saying saturated fat are better than seed oils. Mm -hmm. We need to get away from seed oils. We need to move towards saturated fat. But it does seem to be that, as you mentioned, you're not a proponent of seed oils. Staying away from them, yeah. from them not existing inside of our diet. Yeah, I think there's a difference between 
I, I would agree that no, that we shouldn't be increasing ultra processed foods in our diet, and a lot of those foods will contain seed oils. But I think there's a difference between that and seed oils being in, inherently bad for us, inherently inflammatory, or in, inherently, um, you know, uh, going to increase our risk of obesity, for example. So I think we need to be careful of kind of uh, delineating that, um, and. You know the fact about the processing of the food it's an interesting one uh you know there are certain foods that are processed like vinegar for example which we know will uh you know reduce um blood glucose excursions in in people with insulin resistance it's a processed food but it has a healthy effect on physiology right it's a question of how many steps of yeah. processing and everything that goes into it but i do and even can people that, make vinegar at home? Yeah, they can make vinegar at home. I guess Try I, would make a seed back, at home. I would push back a tiny please, bit. Please, please. That's why uh, I invited you on. I wanted and, to hear and, your thoughts. And, and, and it's <laughs> not because I think what you're saying is not logical. I think it's completely logical. And I used to hold that view that, well, if something is not natural, then it, it must not be good for us. Or as, and I don't or, believe that. Or right as way. good as something else. Yeah. So I might be putting words into your mouth. But, but you know, the fact that seed oils aren't natural, I don't think that can be uh, a reason for writing them off. I think we do have to look at what the science shows in terms of inflammation. You know, again, we have our intuition, um, but we test it with science. And, you know, there are many things in our life that are not natural that have improved health outcomes. Um, modern housing and uh, of course, heating and cooling everything. and stuff. So Access to insulin, yeah. access to peptide, access to everything. Yeah, so I know you're not going there, but sometimes you can go down that sort of naturalistic fallacy kind of pathway. Um, the, the, I guess to, to summarize this is my, my view is that, you know, often if people are taking absolutes um, and, and um, looking to, to, direct people to their diet being the single only optimal diet, they have to find a scapegoat. And for me, for proponents out there saying you don't have to worry about saturated fat, their scapegoat is seed oils. And my challenge to them is to look at the science that I've just shared, look at the review from Philip Calder, who is probably one of the world experts on omega-6s uh, and, and studying inflammation, and to step outside of the mechanistic data, right? and look at what's happening in humans and to 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 look at that evidence and then to you know uh, decide whether that updates their thinking of this food group or to provide other evidence that suggests that that uh, is incorrect and being misinterpreted yeah i'm excited about with with all these different camps that are out there that have their own opinion I think one thing that's going to come out of this, and we're already starting to see it a little bit, is uh, right now a lot of the studies, many that are included in your book, and many that other people reference that are out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you can find a study that supports this, and of course, there's a hierarchy mm -hmm. that's there that you've talked about. It's uh, generally institutions are the ones that have access to it, the ones that have access to the funding, call them mm -hmm. universities, research institutions. Peter T at one point in time tried to set up NUSI, you know, mm -hmm. the Nutritional Science uh, Institute, and trying to, you know, running their own studies. And, you know, he was talking about how it's 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 difficult to get the funding, and yet uh, one trend that I see that's coming up is crowdsourcing funding. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'm really excited about that. There's a company that I know called Proofpilot. Some people okay. are working with them. We just started working with them. 
Um, but I'm very interested because it always feels that every side feels that when there's a counter argument, especially if there's a viewpoint of, let's say, this group comes more from the vegetarian or the vegan mm-hmm. lens. This group comes more from like the keto or the saturated fat lens. Uh, it always feels that the default is, well, there's not the right study that's out there. And I want to mm-hmm. see more people funding studies mm-hmm. and getting independent groups to do studies. That This is not to discount your earlier point that there is a lot of plenty of good data that's mm-hmm. out there. But when you as a listener and myself as a listener are hearing some of these conversations and you hear these rebuttals of people coming back and forth, they look at the holes that are there inside of each study. And I'm not giving mm-hmm. weight to them. I'm just saying I'm excited about people crowdfunding and agreeing to, hey, we all mm-hmm. agree that this would be a good example mm-hmm. of helping us to settle or these multiple studies would help us settle the science a little bit more where there might be some debates. Yeah. And that's needed, you know, uh, because you, you made is, this, can I make one more point yeah. that's there that I'd love you to chime in on? Cause one of the things that comes up is you have talked about in your book is that even when you do see some improvements on a higher fat diet or this, you're always asking compared to what, mm-hmm. right? Compared to what? Then the other side of it, I know my business partner, Dr. Mark Hyman has talked a lot about this is the healthy user effect, which is, can you explain that to the audience mm-hmm. that's uh, listening in? And I know you have yeah. some thoughts on it. Yeah. So compared to what, I guess we'll start there. That's, that's really important uh, because you, you know, you can show a, a food is healthy or not healthy, but what's really important is what was it compared to? Uh, and that is a source of huge confusion. You know, you'll see, uh, for example, you might see a headline talking about coconut oil being the, the new healthiest cooking oil. And they looked at um, its effect on cholesterol and they compared it to butter, but it wasn't compared to anything else. Um, so, you know, the, the kind of interpretation, um, it becomes misinterpreted because uh, people are, are just seeing, you know, the conclusion from the abstract and are not aware of the methodology. Uh, now, your question about... Um, and within that, there's also absolute changes, relative changes, the relative changes tend Mm -hmm. to make it on the headlines Mm -hmm. that are there on both sides Mm -hmm. of the, you know, the camp of different dietary wars Mm -hmm. that are there. Um, Oh, so I was saying just crowdsourcing funding and people agreeing on, Mm -hmm. you know, Hey, this would be a good quality study because there's the, it always seems to be that there's some reason Mm -hmm. why this wasn't and there's no perfect study, and that's not the goal of science either. It's the ongoing, you know, continuing to look at things that are there. But I'm excited about more crowdfunding of studies yeah. that come from this. And there's an example. Let's come back to the healthy user effect because yes, you asked me that. But there yes. is an example of crowdfunding. Um, I believe it was crowdfunded uh, that uh, Dave Feldman. I'm not sure if you've come across. No, I'm not his familiar work. with him. He, he's he's looking at a study of. Uh, people adopting a, a ketogenic diet who have significantly high LDL cholesterol, uh, but ha- also have uh, low triglycerides and high HDL. He, he's come up with a, a term lean mass hyper responders. And his, oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry, his, I am his, familiar with that. His him. theory is that, um, that these people are different to someone with traditional lipid sort of metabolism dysfunction. Right, because um, they have a unique phenotype. Yeah, but and and so I support his 
idea to go and do a study and he's crowdfunded and I think that's amazing. Um, but what I will say is that just because someone has a theory and is going to run a study, we shouldn't be overlooking what the current consensus position is because um, in that instance, it can lead to public health recommendations that could be harmful. So while there's room for more science, the public health recommendations of today need to be from the very best data that we actually have and using going back to that evidence hierarchy. I think that's a really important point to note. And that's essentially what these guideline papers around the world, I mentioned some of them before, whether it's the European Atherosclerosis Society or the American Heart Association or the American uh, Endocrinology Association, they are tasked with exactly that. They have a number of committee members, anywhere from 10 to 20, all individuals who adopt different dietary patterns. So you can remove that personal bias of, you know, they're, they're not all people adopting a paleo diet or all vegetarians. It's a committee. And they are tasked with looking at the, the totality of the evidence and using the evidence hierarchy to come to recommendations. And really those recommendations should be where, where we're all going to for our own recommendations until further research is done and suggests otherwise. Um, I think it's risky to be veering off those paths and going rogue because you have a hypothesis that you believe is correct. Most hypotheses are, are falsified and proved wrong. So I think that's a really important thing for, for, in, for in people to remember. Like the American Heart Association, I, I would say that, okay, maybe there's a feeling around saturated fats and their recommendation that's there for the longest time. I mean, their recommendations on sugar... Mm -hmm seem to be influenced by the industry that was funding them they did they they're they, making pretty hard regulations on sugar saying to to really that's like limit. more recent but we've known the data mm. on sugar for quite some time mm. and the funding on the american heart association look at the top funders mm. you know it's primarily a yeah. good chunk so, of industry that's I mean, there so is consensus really always the goal i think there's there can be big gaps of knowledge that are inside especially when you have an organization not dialing back on alcohol recommendations or, um, you know, in the case of sugar, which mm. I think was the most recent example of only maybe recently being dialed back from where the recommendations yeah, were. Yeah, I think, you know, all of the organizations have at some point probably been influenced by industry, right? But I do believe they're getting better. Look at Health Canada's guidelines. They actually came out and said, this is the first time we will not be affected by industry. If you look at their 2020 dietary guidelines um, and they actually removed dairy as an essential food group as a result you know they still say you can consume it but it's not there as you have to consume dairy every single day yeah, that's um, huge. and even the AHA the new guidelines and anyone can look these up uh, you know they they are now taking a much harder stance on sugar absolutely they uh, are are actually mentioning how important the environment is now you know of course uh ethically if you're you're promoting dietary guidelines from a human health perspective you have to acknowledge that human health is very dependent on a healthy planet so they're including that in um from a protein point of view their latest guidelines specifically say to um, to choose more plant protein more often. Um, so I think they've done a, a, an enormous job with those guidelines. Uh, but the other thing that I would add there is that, you know, all of these guidelines 
around the world are consistent. It's not like they're all disagreeing with each other. They are all very, very consistent, and they just they go back and speak essentially to that theme that we we spoke about before. So, um, you know, I'd push back a little bit there because I do feel like I see people online who uh, are, are not necessarily qualified to look at the evidence suggesting that they know better than the guidelines. And I think that is is somewhat problematic, can be problematic. Um, healthy user effect. You want to go there? Yeah, yeah. It's worth <laughs> touching on. Um, and then I want to talk about what you eat. Yeah. And- so healthy user effect uh, can be a real problem. Yeah, just describe um, what it and, is for everybody. And who's it's not really familiar. it's it's mostly a problem in in observational research epi- epidemiology. If you're looking at large populations of people, um, you know, a type of study design that can be really informative and helpful because it helps fill in a gap where clinical intervention trials can't uh, really help us answer questions from a feasibility point of view. Um, the 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 problem that you can come into in these populations is that, say, for example, you're looking at a large population of people that eat differently. Well, those that are eating more fruits and vegetables are probably drinking less alcohol. They're probably doing more physical activity. They're probably smoking less. So when you go and you better look at- Better relationships, maybe. Better relationships, right. Yeah. So when you go and you, they probably weigh less. When you go and you look at, at, okay, those people compared to those people, what was the differences in terms of cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes or Alzheimer's dementia, uh, the question then becomes, well, was it the fruits and veg or was it something else? Uh, and so you hear people online talk about healthy user effect. And I think it's important to acknowledge that the researchers doing this, this type of research, if they're good, they understand the limitations of these studies more than people on the internet. So they are fully aware of the healthy user effect and they use what's called a multivariable analysis, multivariate analysis, which essentially uh, if if you properly define your cohort, characterize it so when you are um, taking uh, information about what they eat you're also getting information about alcohol exercise and um, smoking and you're properly defining that so it's not just like do you smoke or yes or no or do you drink alcohol yes or no it's one drink a day two drinks a day three four five seven same with smoking and when you run the multivariate analysis the, the whole point of doing that is to reduce the effect of these confounding variables. So let's say, for example, I, I barely eat fruits and vegetables. And let's say you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, right? But you also exercise you know, much more than me. It would be unfair to compare you to me and attribute the benefit to the fruits and vegetables, maybe the exercise, right? So with this multivariate analysis, what they do is they remove the effect of exercise. So they only are looking at essentially people that consume a lot of fruits and vegetables with people that consume few, but exercise levels are the same. Smoking levels are the same. Alcohol consumption is the same. And I think that is overlooked. Uh, There is this sort of general idea that all observational study is completely affected by healthy user effect. Um, But 
that multivariate analysis now is just standard protocol. Now, could there be some other type of confounding variable that's not picked up in the study, like relationships or things outside of these very obvious ones? Perhaps, but um, they're going a long way to kind of reduce the, the chances of that. Or just even just dietary logs, right? Like not even like do people tend to underestimate, overestimate when it comes mm. to filling out surveys. Mm. And and that goes on all sides of the spectrum. And I think that the better that we have tools and technology that can look at isolating certain types of biomarkers, which can be one part of it. It's not it's not to say that you have to write off every observational study. It's just to say that that might be some influence that could be there. Like they're not, hmm. nothing you is need, perfect. You need to get into the methodology, right? And and this is, again, comes back to, you know, understanding how to look at these studies. For example, if, if a, a study is using a food frequency questionnaire, they should have validated it in that, that, population. Again, this is standard protocol in good epidemiology. So the idea here is that um, there are a number of tools to to do epidemiology really well, and we need people to lean in and continually to do it better and better and better because it will give us more, um, more confidence in our results. And what I mean by validating a food frequency questionnaire is we uh, do, you know, actually, you know, weighed food records in that population over a, a three, five, or seven-day period and match it to the food frequency questionnaire. And we see if people are, if there's good high correlation between the survey and the weighed food records. And if there is, then you can determine that that food frequency questionnaire is a valid tool to use in that population to give us a very good general idea of how people are eating. It doesn't really feel, and I'm much more limited than you, but I just started taking a foot into this world because we signed this uh, partnership with a company called Proofpilot, which helps companies run their own clinical trials and things like that. And we're, you know, we, we had introduced in the Cleveland Clinic where there's uh, Dr. Hyman Center, the Center for Functional Medicine over there, and they published their first study in JAMA. I'm going through these validated questionnaires that are often used in dietary interventions. And again, Anybody can do a clinical trial. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean that it's even high quality. It doesn't mean you know anything about it. But looking at some of these validated questionnaires on gut health, we have a study mm -hmm. that's coming up that, on gut health that we're preparing for with this company, Proofpilot. I'm looking at them, and even though it's a validated, accepted questionnaire mm -hmm. in, in sort of that space on GI health, it's like there's so many interpretations of the way that somebody could answer a particular hmm. question set. I, I think that it, it just feels like it could be a little bit of confusion that's there. I wonder, and, and it's it really goes towards your bigger point that I feel like you're talking about in the book, which is what is the broad spectrum of all these studies saying mm -hmm. and the meta-analysis, as long as you're getting good quality studies in, what is that showcasing? Mm -hmm. Because you'll always have some studies that are done well, some studies that are not. But if the overall direction is pointing in this place, then it's probably a good thing to to pay attention mm -hmm. to. Yeah. The, the point I was making with the food records is that if I was to kind of break this down, the, the weighed food records is, is taking a person and, and, you know, how much white meat are they having a day? How much, uh, and when you say weighed, just want to make sure I understand. Actually You're talking about weighed scale. on scales. Yeah. So, so you get people, a subset of the, of, of, uh, sample 
group of people from within that population and you go you go through everything they eat you actually weigh is that happening on a regular basis this happens in any good quality epidemiology right and and so you get a small when when that tool's validated so the tool for example may have already been validated in that population and another study uses it as a valid food frequency questionnaire but at some point it it really has to be validated and the idea is that you're literally you know what this subset you know exactly what they're eating because you're able to weigh it you know a a serve of blueberries a cup of greens however many walnuts etc and then they're completing their food frequency questionnaire and you can see does it actually match and you know if you end up weighing all the food and you know exactly what they eat and then their food frequency questionnaire says the exact opposite you know that you've got a pretty lousy tool but if it's coming back and it's 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 showing very high correlation those people are are saying quite accurately how much white meat they're eating and seafood and walnuts and blueberries and dark leafy greens and whatever then you know okay this is a good robust tool that we can then go you can't weigh food for 500,000 people or however many are in the total population, but you can use that food frequency questionnaire. I want to pivot because I'm sure that was a little bit inside baseball for (laughs) some of the audience that's there. Let's talk about you and your, and your diet and just like how you navigate Mm. life. You know, I'm sure you get the question all the time, you know, what do you eat? Mm -hmm. How do you eat? And um, I'm also curious too about since you haven't gone on this journey and your dad with Mm -hmm. his whole experience, you know, what's his life and his diet and his mm-hmm. world look like now? Let's start with you and then we'll come back to you. Okay, your cool. Uh, so my diet, I'd say, is a, uh, you know, it's a whole food plant-based diet, but it's not a quote-unquote perfect diet. I don't really believe that that exists. I still, you know, deviate and enjoy some of the more indulgent foods that are out there from time to time. Uh, and I would say at a high level... Um, you know, my diet is is full of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. It's not a low-fat diet. Um, I know that there is, you know, certain low-fat plant-based diets that have been sort of uh, promoted in the in the past. I don't believe there's any evidence to suggest that's better than a diet that is rich in unsaturated fats. And I and in in actual fact, I think adding in lots of unsaturated fats is a good idea for most people than going to a super low-fat. Um, diet uh so i'm certainly not restricting fats it's more about the type of fats and uh i am fairly active um and so my protein intake i'd say is on the higher side compared to someone perhaps who's living a less active lifestyle so i have a bit more of a bias in my diet uh, away from whole grains more to the legume category, uh, be it beans or chickpeas or tofu or tempeh, those sorts of foods, um, which helps me, you know, achieve that sort of total protein intake that I'm looking to to get to. We can explore that if you, if you want. I'm not sure how much detail you want here, but um, you know, my meals uh, really vary uh, depending on the day. But uh, I do things like tofu scramble. I do a lot of very big. Um, you know, salads, particularly more towards the end of the day, I tend to have uh, my lightest meal is is usually my evening kind of dinner meal. 
big salads with lots of dark leafy greens, um, spinach, uh, arugula, um, lettuce, etc. Like a good mix of different different types of dark leafy greens. There will be um, some um, nuts and seeds in there. Walnuts are a big go-to for me. They're really rich in ALA, omega-3s. Put some pumpkin seeds uh, in, in my salads a lot. Very rich in iron. Uh, I will usually... In, in this kind of big salad that I'll, I'll make, put some type of legume, like a, um, chickpeas, for example. Uh, and uh, dressing-wise, that you know, the salad's going to have you know, olive oil with some, perhaps with some mustard. And uh, that's for a few reasons. One, you, you have the, the healthy fats in there, uh, but also, um, you know, Fat, so it's it's important to have fat in our meals to absorb a lot of uh, of the vitamins, particularly the uh, the fat soluble vitamins. Um, so, and and also carotenoids like lutein, for example, which is uh, found uh, in in abundance in dark leafy greens. So, um, there'll be some olive oil toss throughout there, probably some some tomato, avocado, uh, and that's kind of like one dish. Um, sometimes I'll put strawberries into that. It might sound a little weird, but um, I'm, I'm a big one on getting sort of at least a couple servings of berries a day. Uh, there's some, some good research on on, on that from um, Martha Morris's group at uh, Rush University uh, looking at prevention of dementia. Um, so, I mean, that's a description, I guess, of one meal. But there's smoothies, there's stir fries, there's um, I will do oatmeal for breakfast here and there. Um, and you eat any animal protein at all? I don't eat any. No, no, no animal protein. I haven't had animal protein for seven plus years. Uh, and during that time, so I was probably uh, I weighed ninety five kilograms now, and so in pounds, uh, a little over two hundred. Uh, so. And I was at the start. I was probably around 83, 84. So I've managed to, to build strength and put on quite a bit of size in that, over that period, um, which I believe lines up pretty nicely with quite a bit of science that's come out speaking to if your goal is to build lean muscle, if it is to improve strength, then um, what seems to be most important is total protein intake. Uh, at around 1.6 grams per kilogram. And if you're hitting that mark, the actual source of the protein doesn't seem to make a difference in terms of those actual hard health outcomes, which uh, you know I've had a number of those researchers on my show that have conducted um, those studies. And that, that has been very surprising for a lot of these protein researchers to, to learn over the last handful of years because... You know the the prevailing theory was that animal protein is much better, much more anabolic, much better at building lean muscle and strength. And so, for you, just because you brought up protein, how much does that translate that into into grams? One hundred and fifty. One hundred and fifty grams of protein is what you're having a day. Mm -hmm. And usually, from just just having been vegetarian mm -hmm. and and vegan. Looking at 150 grams again. That's you. You're mm -hmm. you're a bigger guy. You're more active. Again, you have different goals that are there. Um, some people would say that you know to get it from an animal source, 
that might be more concentrated. Just mm-hmm. again, not talking about animal sources better mm-hmm. or not better. You definitely do have to eat quite a volume of plant food to get to that 150 grams for you. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of like total amounts. Yeah, I think, well, let me explain how I get there, I guess. So probably 100, 110 of that would come through whole foods. Mm-hmm. I'll have a plant-based protein shake, which I think most that most guys that are working out will have some sort of shake if it's whey or plant protein, uh, purely because it's a convenient way to get 30, 40 grams uh, in. Um, and Any from, favorite brand, by the way? Any favorite brands that you like? <sighs> That's hard for me to say. I get sent so much. It's hard for me to choose one brand. Okay, sorry I interrupted I, you. Please continue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not like sponsored by a particular brand, so I, I don't feel obliged to kind of mention one. But but if I am choosing a plant protein, usually I look for a blend of uh, at least two different types of plant protein, like a brown rice and a pea protein, for for example. Uh, but you know the the there's protein in all plants, but most of the protein in a, in a plant-based diet is going to come from that legume food group. So that 100, 110 grams is coming through uh, chickpeas and kidney beans and lentils and tofu and tempeh, but also legume pasta. So there's a lot of those chickpea pastas and whatnot now out. Um, I consume seitan. I have no problems with gluten. So that's a very concentrated source of protein. It's not going to be for someone if they're avoiding um, gluten. And then uh, mycoprotein. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Like mushroom? Which I think is, yeah, I think this is really fascinating and is one of many solutions that will help you know, feed a, a growing population, the amount of protein that's required in a sustainable manner. Uh, I mean, if you think about a cow, for example, you you feed the cow uh, plant nutrients, plant uh, foods, or it's grazing on grass, and um, it produces muscle and, and you eat that. Uh, similar to that with, uh, with fungi, these microbes, you can feed the microbes plant um, foods, potato or rice or whatever, and it will produce this very, very high fiber, protein rich uh, food. And it's it's a uh, the texture is much more like meat than say tofu. So this is a very emerging food. It's it's on the market in in, in certain places, the UK. There's some here, um, but it's very it's very early. Uh, but that in particular is super protein dense. So uh, you talk about volume. When you add in some of these foods like the seitan and mycoprotein, for example, you uh, you know you're reducing that total volume of food. It's not as if you have to to get to 150 grams of protein from chickpeas alone. What's your thoughts? Zooming out a little bit in terms of you know you eat the way you just described the way you eat. And you had also mentioned, you know, people are always curious, you don't eat any Mm. animal protein. What's your thoughts in terms of how humans of human diet evolved? Mm -hmm. And um, do you think that the absent, your ability to not include animal proteins, which Mm -hmm. do you eat eggs? No. No. So you don't eat any animal. So you're vegan, Mm -hmm. right? Would that, would that be safe yeah, to say? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't really wear that badge. Yeah, yeah, but, but just but from I guess a, my diet would be described as a vegan diet. Right, right. Your diet would be described as a vegan diet. Do you think that it's a byproduct of our modern day and age that we have 
this the life that we do and we can make protein powders and we mm-hmm. can make all these different types of things and mm-hmm. other components that allows us to be plant-based and it's a better option for the planet it's a better mm-hmm. option for definitely you know uh, us. or do you think that we sort of veered off course and you know yeah just curious about that no i think i think if you go back to look at paleolithic era and i've had uh herman ponser on my show i'm not sure if you're familiar with him he no, wrote a book he wrote a book called burn great book for anyone he's he's a evolutionary anthropologist uh one of the leading uh in the world and has spent time living with the hardzer and um fascinating book and he goes back and, and looks at the diets of hunter gatherers around the world and you know uh different depending on where tribes lived the the makeup of their diet looked different and also through different seasons so some tribes had a whole lot of animal uh calories coming from animal foods and less from plant foods and then other tribes had a whole lot coming from plant foods and less from animal foods and they also within those tribes through the season the diets would change quite a bit um he specifically makes a point that uh lauren cordain who wrote the paleo diet uh when when he sort of formulated the, that that paleo diet and uh, the citations that he's used in his book, it comes from the Murdoch Atlas, and he essentially looked at all of the hunter gatherer tribes around the world and produced an average of calories um, from fat, from protein, from carbohydrates, and what the typical paleo diet looks like. Now, you might be imagining that there's some problems with that because what's interesting is is not actually the most interesting finding about looking at these hunter-gatherer tribes around the world is the variation that existed. Absolutely. There wasn't one single paleo diet. Uh, and and, and this, still for those groups today, yeah. by the way, there's so much variation for those mm. modern-day hunter-gatherer and tribes. And this seems to be lost, I think, online. It's it, When, when uh, people are talking about ancestral eating, it's, it, there wasn't one ancestral diet. Um, and I think what's in, what's most instructive for me uh, has been most instructive for me, and particularly talking to to Herman Ponser, is that Homo erectus was not eating for longevity. You know, they were very much eating for survival, to to stay alive, to avoid periods without food, to reach an age to procreate, and that was the important goal for Homo erectus. But today, I I really believe most of us have different goals. It's not about just getting to an age to procreate. We we want to live healthy till 70, 80, 90, most of us anyway. And so with different goals may come different decisions, particularly in an environment where you have more food availability. And that's where I believe science comes in to say, hey, we now have all of this abundant food choices. What are the best choices to make to increase your chance of longevity? And you know, my view is that it is diets that are plant predominant, they're plant forward, they're plant rich. And I think that's a, a consistent finding uh, across across the world. Your point about do you think it would be possible to eat a completely vegan diet without the kind of modern uh, access we have to things like B12 or uh, you know, certain, certain uh, modern plant-based foods, let's call them that. Uh, perhaps not, but uh, what I think is most important is the actual health outcomes and, and what are the hard health outcomes that can be achieved. And I think if someone does a vegan diet, it can be done in a very poor manner 
and lead to very poor health. But if they do it in a way where it is appropriately planned, um, you know, and and they take a B12 supplement for for example, they can have very very good health outcomes. Um, and I don't think that we should discount the diet based on the fact that it's not quote unquote natural because I think the most important thing is what does the data say and if they do it well, what are the typical outcomes? Yeah, and I by no means was trying to discount it. I was just getting, trying to get your own no, perspective on stuff. I think it's a great question, yeah. You know, I come from one of the longest lineages of vegetarian societies in the world. And it's mm. the Jain tradition, J-A-I-N. And there is a super long history, almost like six, 7,000 years of this group becoming, it's Jainism mm. is a particular religion from mm-hmm. India. It's more of a way of life that's there. And uh, being vegetarian is a central part of mm-hmm. that background. I don't abide by that label and I'm not vegetarian in my life right now, but that's the lineage that I kind of came up with. And I was, you know, we would be talking about this and you'd kind of learn in sort of like a Bible study class growing up about the history of vegetarianism and different thoughts and theories. And I was just curious about, you know, Mm -hmm. getting yours. Um, I think about the hunter gatherer tribes. I think one thing that's important to note is that I, I think there's a misconception sometimes in the general population that these groups only live to an age of procreation when you discount infant mortality, hmm. you know, they weren't, they weren't dying at 40, you know, they had, and, and even if they died earlier from infection or other things mm-hmm. like that, these groups regularly had individuals that were living to 70, 80, 90 mm-hmm. years old. I went to go and spend time with the group in Kenya and they're cousins of the Maasai. They're called Samburu, still mm-hmm. a modern day hunter gatherer tribe. Very interesting. Not the diet that I eat at all whatsoever, but they primarily live off of milk. Mm-hmm. They just only drink milk. And then um, occasionally when there's no rainy season or whatever, they drink some cow's blood mm-hmm. and things like that. And maybe on a ceremony or whatever, a wedding, they'll slaughter a goat or anything like that. But they really don't eat. They just drink milk all day. Anyways, um, the we were talking to them about just chronic disease. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, these modern-day hunter-gatherer societies, you know, they don't have instances of chronic disease. And again... From what I've seen, that goes, I'll have to check out the guy that you mentioned, that goes for people both that are more carb, you know, they might have more mm-hmm. have a higher carb diet and less animal protein and more of a, of a higher fat. So I'm not sure of what you were saying about, I do think that people were not thinking about eating for longevity. I do think it was about survival and procreation. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that these groups didn't have longevity inside yeah. of them. They definitely didn't have chronic disease. Yeah, I'm just I was more getting at the basis of their decisions. It would be it wouldn't be logical for us to assume that the 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 food that they were eating is necessarily good for longevity um, because their food choices that they were making were primar- primarily for to survive and to get to procreate. I mean, that's what evolution is. But I do agree with you. There are examples of people and and populations where they do have good health. And Herman Ponser, uh, he does speak about this in his book. The one thing to get to, to consider there is survivorship bias. So in those communities, because there is high infant mortality, the a lot of the uh, the weaker uh, people genetically might not be making their way through. So when you see a high high portion of people living into their 60s, 70s, or 80s, there could be a real bias in that population. Um, so that's something to consider. Uh, on top of that, 
I'm just not sure how validated a lot of those populations are. I know people talk about examples of, of longevity, but I'm not sure that those cohorts have been as validated as, say, for example, like the Okinawans. And what I mean by that is actually not just conversations, but getting in there, scientists looking at exactly how people are dying, what are the records, because so many of these places have no records. You know, there's no there's no public health records. So we really, uh, many of them don't even know how old they are. So it's, Most it's, don't know it's it, it, it becomes very murky, right? If you're dealing with this population, there's no health records. Um, you know, do you just kind of, uh, you know, just assume that they're living long uh, because there are a few people that are surviving to a certain age or, um, you know, I think it would be nice to have better data to, to be able to look at. But I guess the main thing here is that we would definitely agree on is that the, you know, the biggest difference between these diets and, and the diets in Western populations is ultra processed foods. Yeah, you know, for sure. All of those hunter-gatherer tribes, as you mentioned, they're eating whole foods. Some are eating more animal foods and, and some are eating more plant foods. But the one thing they're not doing is they're not eating ultra-processed foods. 100% agree. And like you said, we were chatting a little bit before the interview started recording. There's so much more that people agree on. Like if you probably looked, I'm, I'm in the process of... I did a deep gut repair. I grew up on antibiotics and other mm -hmm. things like that. You know, got sick often a lot, and uh, and probably didn't have the best. Definitely didn't have the best vegetarian diet during the day, and then the evening had like a really great. You know, mm -hmm. access to all sorts of really great foods and things, and um, my gut was destroyed. And uh, when I first started shifting my diet, actually, my, I first started thinking that I might want to consider eating some other stuff because. I was experiencing depression-like symptoms. Mm. Again, I'm just talking about my story. Mm. And I had a, 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 a doctor that I just got introduced to that was in the world of functional medicine. He said, hey, look, I want to just share some of the literature that's out there on um, you know, omega-3 fatty acids, mm -hmm. right? Just something for you to consider, to look at. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm open to trying something. So I, at the time I had done this test, no affiliation with the company. I talked about it recently in an episode. I did this test called a mega quant. Mm -hmm. If you're familiar yeah, with yeah, it, yeah. it's like a mega three yeah. to a mega index. six index ratio. Yeah. Looking at blood levels, and you know, I know there's a big controversy around. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of the studies on fish are looking at sort of the observational requirements that people are putting in and saying how much fish they eat. This is actually looking at like blood levels mm -hmm. of mega three floating inside of the the blood, and my ratio was in the um, what was considered not mm -hmm. uh, like the lowest ratio. Right, my omega six was really high, and my omega three was really low. So I just did a personal little experiment over a period of time. Again, a one, not mm -hmm. applied to anybody who's listening over here. wasn't a clinical trial, anything that that was there. Just somebody who's trying to figure things out for himself. And I started eating a little bit of uh, uh, salmon and cod. I would say probably about two, mm -hmm. uh, two to three servings a week that I'd make myself and wild cod and everything like that. And there could have been other factors that are going on. Again, this wasn't a trial. This wasn't anything that was there. But over the course of about 60 days, uh, probably about 45 days, 30 to 45 days, I just started to see a difference in my mood. Mm -hmm. There is clinical data on that. Yeah. There's clinical data on on uh, omega-3s helping to reduce symptoms of depression. Yeah. Um, so, that, I mean, that's consistent with that for sure. Right. And so where I was going uh, uh, with this is that, you know, there's – 
there's going to be people are and and generally besides that inclusion of like my fish in my diet i was talking about my gut health as well then i went to high saturated fat with uh, mostly like coconut oil. Mm. Actually, I was cooking only with coconut mm-hmm. oil, other things like that. I was still mostly eating fish. And I met a microbiologist named Kieran Krishnan, and he was like, I was telling him I was having a resurgence of mm-hmm. some acne, which I used to have way back in the day before I gave up dairy, right? Dairy was mm-hmm. deeply connected to my acne before. And he said, you gotta be careful because co- it seems to be that coconut oil and just saturated fat in general could induce an endotoxemia mm-hmm. by piercing a little bit of that leaky gut situation mm-hmm. that people are dealing with. So I did an experiment. I took out all the you know, coconut oil and saturated fat that I had loaded up on my diet on, and I saw that go away. I felt a little bit better. And I think that a lot of people are doing these, you know, they're just trying to figure out mm-hmm. what's right for them. But in general, for most people that are listening to this podcast and probably your podcast, they have a lot more in common that they're eating mm-hmm. with the plant foods. And sometimes there are times where I'm like, should I do another episode on nutrition? Because am I just talking to people who are just arguing about whether or not they should include a little bit of saturated fat yeah. or not? But generally, we you mm-hmm. know we agree on everything else, and and I would also agree that fish are a healthy food. I think yeah. they can they can feature. Have in you a chosen not diet. to eat fish primarily from an environmental standpoint? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. my my decision not to eat fish is not really a, a health decision. Uh, you know, there is some observational research that suggests if you swap calories from uh, from fish for plant protein, there might be a small benefit, but it's very inconsistent and it's limited. And overall, the evidence on fish suggests it's very health promoting. You get married in the future, you're, you, get, you guys decide to have a baby, mm-hmm. right? Would it be important for you uh, or would you recommend to your wife at the time, right, mm-hmm. that to include having looked at some of the data and, mm-hmm. and, and omega-3s and their association with uh, brain IQ mm-hmm. and most recently the Framingham data that came mm-hmm. out of longevity of potentially adding an extra five years, mm-hmm. looking at blood levels of omega-3 inside a diet, or would you say, no, we can handle this through supplementation? Well, that would be a decision for me to make in conjunction with my Of course, partner. of course. Uh, I would be coming at, the, at it from a, a completely judgment-free point of view, which is how I always approach this. Um, I mean, really, the the option there is you eat fatty fish a couple of times a week, uh, or you have a, an algae oil supplement that is um, contains you know around 500 milligrams of DHA at least during pregnancy, along with some some EPA. So there are ways to do it. You could you could certainly supplement if you didn't want to to eat seafood. I don't see any problem with that, and there, um, you know, the literature doesn't suggest otherwise. Not that I've seen anyway. So, um, and that's what I do personally now. I supplement with with an algae oil. Um, now, for a uh, sort of non-pregnant adult uh, that's not eating fish, do they have to supplement with with a, an algae oil? That's often a question that I get. Uh, my this is heavily debated, debated by the way. So it's another, I know. It's another a- one of these charge <laughs> topics. Uh, my take on the data, and, and usually when, when looking at DHA and EPA, it's pertaining to cardiovascular disease and to uh, cognition, to brain health. They're usually the kind of outcomes of interest. And 
overall, the omega-3 supplementation trials looking at cardiovascular disease probably in the media have been reported as quite disappointing. Um, but there are some nuances, and I explore them in the book. Um, when you sort of break through the abstract and the primary outcome being like a composite of cardiovascular disease outcomes, so stroke and heart attacks and death from strokes and heart attacks all lumped together, when you look at those more broken down, there does seem to be a benefit in terms of myocardial infarction for omega-3 supplementation, particularly in people who are consuming low or no amounts of fish. So there is some data there that, and people will, will point to that and, and pick a few holes in it and say it's not perfect data and it's not, um, but it is there. There's a signal. That, that people who have low baseline fish intake seem to derive benefit from the omega-3 supplementation from a cardiovascular point of view. Um, and and then when you look at the, the cognitive studies, the the cogni cognition studies uh, for, for healthy adults have been a little disappointing. There's some on mild cognitive impairment that has shown a little bit of a signal with benefit for supplementing omega-3. Um, however, that's heavily debated and people will talk to the methodology and talk about how those studies aren't perfect as well. So going back to going back to what point, I was talking about earlier, <laughs> more, stu more studies needed. Uh, and then by the time someone has Alzheimer's dementia, it seems to be too late just to take an omega-3 supplement and expect to sort of reverse the condition. Um, overall, my position is that the data is not perfect. But I think if you're not consuming fish, then supplementing with an algae oil, if you can justify the cost, is a good insurance policy. And uh, if you're taking around 800 to a, milligrams to a gram a day, at least around, around that mark, um, every day, that is equivalent to sort of two to three pieces of fatty fish a week. Two to three pieces of salmon, for example. You know, I've noticed something really interesting is that regardless of people's dietary uh, viewpoint, when women get pregnant, I've seen like there's this deep intuition mm -hmm. of kind of reaching for certain foods that maybe they mm -hmm. didn't used to, to reach for. So personally, again, I was very involved in the plant-based community. I used to have like a, a deep website on that. And still I eat so much of my diet mm -hmm. is based around those core components uh, that are there. So this is not at all that I'm on the other end of the mm -hmm. spectrum and I'm a carnivore or, a, you know, keto junkie or anything like that. I believe in metabolic flexibility. I believe in, you know, I think you and I probably eat very similarly mm -hmm. minus. I probably have less legumes mm -hmm. just because I noticed the irritation. I'm still in the process of healing my gut. And I know you've talked about mm -hmm. that on how to ramp up and build yourself back up to you. You can handle more of some of those foods that might be causing people um, irritation. But going back, I just saw something very interesting, which is that my female friends who were very much firmly in the in the plant-based world, this is completely anecdotal, mm -hmm. but it'll go into this crazy theory that I have, which might have nothing to do with this podcast at all. When there is a pregnancy and they've never considered before including something like fish, I even had Ocean Robbins. Do you know Ocean Robbins? Mm -hmm. I've had him on my show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if we've talked about this at all, but he told me a story about... Um, 
you know, his dad, John Robbins, for those that are not familiar, Baskin Robbins found, you know, family and then left that whole empire because he didn't believe in dairy and the, you know, everything that it was contributing to the environment and it's not healthy for people. I asked him, you know, hey, with all the research that's out there and this is what I do now, I fish a little bit. What are your thoughts? He said, actually, I had a very similar experience. He started including fish inside of his diet for, and I said, what was the impetus? He said, well, actually my wife got pregnant mm -hmm. and for the first time, you know, she had also been, I think, vegan and vegetarian is for a long ocean time. Is this Ocean or John? Ocean, ocean. Ocean, yeah, yeah. Ocean. Yeah. And there was just this intuition of, hey, this is what I need. Mm -hmm. I, and I'm bringing this story up because you said something earlier. You said, I would approach any situation from a dogma-free standpoint. Mm. And you were talking about having a kid mm. and like making that decision with your, with your, you know, with your partner. Yeah. Like you two together. And I think that one thing that I'm just really big on, in addition to following the broad stroke science recommendations mm. that are out there, you highlight a lot of them in your book. Uh, the proof is in the plants, you know, definitely get it. It's in the show notes. Uh, there's this component of and I find women are a little bit better at this than men, of if you find out that what you're doing is maybe in some way not working or you don't feel that mm -hmm. it's working, give yourself some freedom to maybe explore. 100%. As long as there's some markers that are there that you can say like, okay, what does success you know, mm -hmm. look like in addition to annual physicals and other things like that? Yeah, you, you, you have to be real with yourself. And if you're getting signs or signals that something's not quite right or uh, you know you're you're just not feeling as healthy as you want to, as vibrant as you want to. Uh, I think it's worth examining, and you know I know that that you and definitely me. I it's not about telling someone how to eat and they can sustain it for a short period of time. This is about the long, the long, uh, the long game. You know, what can you adhere to over a very long period of time and not thinking about doing it perfectly, quote unquote, perfectly. And and so I I do, I encourage people to play around within that theme, to tweak things, to not get stuck in this ideological view of, of their diet. I think that that can hold people back. And so, um, you know, there are, there are going to be circumstances where people need to grapple with, you know, the the ethics side and and the health side, and and with all of that information, make the decision that feels right for you. Not feel pressured from dietary tribes and the outside world. It's you know sitting down with yourself or your significant other, and you're you're just making the best decision that you can each and every day, and. You know, I think there is there is this sort of uh, growing tribalism, and when you identify within those tribes, uh, you know, you just need to be mindful of the fact that if you fall into a completely ideological view of how you're eating, then your your health may suffer at some point because you're not staying open minded and you're not listening to your body and thinking about you know making changes. Now. Um, that's that's becomes a tricky thing i think when in the the planetary health and and animal welfare comes into the situation uh for example um but i think it's just something for people to to keep in mind and uh you know if 
ethics are important for you, if sustainability is important for you, you you do need to find a way of eating that you can sustain for for the longest period possible. Absolutely. And I think that increasingly more and more, like even on the animal side, like what's been nice to see out of the world of, even though there's some, maybe some different viewpoints in terms of, you know, regenerative agriculture and its ability to sequester, you mm-hmm. know, carbon. And could that be one way of, uh, for those people that do eat animals, is that one other way to raise a healthier animal, give a better quality life? And I know there's a lot of debates that are on that side, but I think the one positive side is, I think increasingly everybody understands that, you know, you know, I mean, we've had many people on this podcast say that if the choice is don't eat animal pro like eating animal protein from factory farm meats or don't eat like fast, you know, mm. for that meal or that you're at the airport. Everybody's understanding like not like completely staying away from factory farm meats is best for you, best for the planet and best for everybody. So I think there are unifying themes mm. that are coming out that are there, even though there might be some smaller touch points that people have different viewpoints on. And um, that's at least one side that makes me hopeful. Yeah, I had to laugh. Uh, I saw uh, recently Paul Saladino. You've probably come across him. Uh, I do know of him. Yeah. I don't know him personally. He uh, he eats a, a sort of all meat diet or had, um, but recently, you know, you're talking about people changing their diets. Uh, I saw he. It's ironic because his name is the carnivore. MD, he's now added back into his diet uh, honey berries and bananas. So. There you go. That's, there's, there's an example of someone listening to their body. Nice. I don't know too much about his world besides he's a carnivore and other things like that. But uh, hey, at the end of the day, I also think going back to our other point, I think all these, you know, it's good. I'm glad diet is getting a lot of attention because in the past, the the consensus and the limited information that we had prevented uh, us from having, you know, just think about it. Back in the day, X amount of servings of sugar was good. Having mm-hmm. this amount of dairy was good. Having this amount of refined carbs in your diet was like the, you know the standard recommendations. And now, at least through mechanisms of people getting access to your podcast and other people like you, people can make different choices and decisions that are there. Anyways, we've been recording now for almost about two and a half hours. So <laughs> one more final question, then I'd love to wrap up, talk about the world that you've put together. Uh, your dad, how's he doing? Mm-hmm. And... um. Yeah, actually, that's just it. How's your dad doing? He's doing great. He's uh, he's gone on to have a, a very successful career. He's published hundreds and hundreds of papers in uh, leading journals like Metabolism and Cell and Physiology, and uh, his health is is great. His his diet is a, a very plant forward Mediterranean diet, is how I would describe it. So there's still some animal products in there, but that is the dietary pattern that he can sustain and that has resulted in incredible improvements in his health and uh you know it's sometimes the hardest people to influence in your life are family members (laughs) so i i sort of take what i can get and uh very proud of the changes that he's he's made to his diet and uh you know he's always sending me photos of these new dinners that he's cooking up and uh, is is very much now excited by food and understands the importance of not being perfect in any single moment or any single meal, but being very consistent over time. 
and and that's a, a sort of key takeaway i think so yeah all in all he's doing well well there's a term it was coined by this guy dave ramsey who's a financial author he calls it powdered butt syndrome once somebody's wiped your ass <laughs> and taking care of you as a kid, there's this look on you, no matter how smart or master's degrees mm. or information you have or following or whatever, it's like, what could I possibly mm. learn from you? I used to wipe your butt. So mm. I think everybody has that, but it sounds like overall, I mean, I've known some parents that have gone in the opposite direction mm-hmm. from what their kids are doing. So it sounds like your dad is doing a lot. So hats off to him and I'm glad he's in uh, great health uh, as well. Uh, talk a little bit about your world. You have a podcast in addition to the book that's out there mm-hmm. and just anything else you wanna highlight. Thanks. Uh, yeah. So if folks want to hear more of what I have to say, they can tune into the Plant Proof podcast. Similar to this, I sit down with different people from different walks of lives and chat to them about mainly about uh, nutrition and human health, but also planetary health as well. A lot of uh, the the researchers that are performing new studies, I'll get them on and, and sit down with them and uh, dig into a bit of the methodology and what the study does and doesn't say. So if you like that kind of stuff uh we'd love to have you over there uh the book is called the proof is in the plants uh that is out in in america now and uh canada and uk ireland and australia so uh if you want to grab a copy you can do that there's an audio book that i read as well uh for that that was fun uh, there's also a Kindle and, and ebook as well, if that's uh, what floats your boat. Uh, and you can find me on the socials at plant underscore proof. Awesome. Well, Simon, it uh, just worked out perfectly that you happen to be in Santa Monica at this time period. And I'm glad that we got a chance to talk. And thanks for being open to my long winded questions mm-hmm. and my own theories on things. I think always healthy dialogue even if we have different views than people or even if we think we have different views Mm -hmm. a lot of times we think we have different views and then we're like wow you know actually i look at the world very similarly uh to to this individual or we have the same values even Mm -hmm. if we have different views i think that's the most important thing we both want to get the world in addition to actually probably eating very similarly we want to get the world healthy we want to make this information more available to people. And I think that uh, we have to have people on that have a different approach than we might be doing momentarily because we always see something new and we always get excited about some aspect of food that we didn't previously see. So thanks for coming on and getting me excited and sharing your view. Thank you for having me. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I love your curiosity and uh, it's been nice to sit down and have, I I think we did a good job. I think, uh, you know, you had a lot of thought-provoking questions, and and I agree. We need more uh, communication like this, where you know people broadly may may uh, come to similar recommendations, but perhaps don't see completely eye to eye on on certain things. And it's good to be able to have thoughtful, constructive conversation, uh, and then be able to shake hands, walk away, look at at research, and and together refine recommendations and um you know become more knowledgeable as a community and uh i love science i i think it is our only way to solve so many of the the world's issues and uh you know if i was to kind of reiterate one sort of point that seems to be a bit of a theme in this episode it would be that whether you're looking at human health or you're looking at planetary health we, we don't need a few people doing this perfectly. You know, we need billions and billions of people doing it imperfectly. 
So take a bit of pressure off, find that way of eating that works for you, adapt to that theme that I spoke about. Uh, I wish you all the best of luck and uh, hopefully we can connect in the future. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you.